This episode is brought to you by Rhino Skin Solutions. This stuff is my go-to when it comes to taking care of my skin for climbing. I use the repair cream almost every single night, all the time. I use it multiple times a night if I'm climbing in a sharp and crimpy area like Waco Tanks or Leavenworth or some of the other places I like to climb. If I come home from a day of climbing and my skin's torn up, I wash my hands and then I apply repair cream several times throughout the evening. And it really does wonders for helping my skin heal faster and getting me back on the rock the next day. If you want to level up your skin game, head over to rhinoskinsolutions.com to check out their great line of products and enter code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. That's rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. And if you want to learn more about how to use Rhino products and which ones might be right for your skin or for the rock type that you like to climb on, I recorded an episode with founder Justin Brown, who's a friend of mine, way back in episode 22. That's still a great episode, and I still highly recommend it. So check that out to learn more. One final time, rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off the best skincare products in the game. This episode is brought to you by Chalk Cartel. I've tried a lot of different chalk in my 15 plus years of climbing, and this is my favorite chalk. I love the texture. It's got the perfect amount of grit to it that makes it feel stickier than other chalks. And I swear to you, it stays on my hands longer than other chalks. That's the most important part. And if you're trying a long boulder problem or a pumpy sport climb or a trad climb, not having to stop and chalk up as often can make all the difference. Head over to chalkcartel.com and check out their shop. They've got quarters, they've got kilos, they've even got a sample pack for $3. I call that the dime bag. So you can try it out before diving elbow deep into your chalk bucket. And if you're already hooked on it, like me, you can buy a subscription and have amazing chalk automatically sent to your house. So cool. You can have it delivered every month, every two months, or every three months. All their packaging is eco-friendly, so keeping your chalk bag full has never been easier or lower impact. So check them out, chalkcartel.com, and use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next purchase and get ready to join the cartel. I will leave you with this friendly message from my three-year-old niece. Chalk Cartel, you're either for us or we're against you. This episode is brought to you by Crimped. This is the best app I have seen when it comes to self-coached training for rock climbing. Crimped has dozens of workouts crafted by world-class climbers and coaches that focus on all of the different facets of climbing performance and training, including workouts to guide your outdoor climbing. I just did a really fun collaboration with the guys at Crimped, and now all of you can try my three favorite outdoor bouldering workouts right there in the Crimped app. We've got one called Steven's Outdoor Bouldering Warm-Up, which is my go-to warm-up on a bouldering day. We've got Steven's Outdoor Limit Bouldering, which will guide you through my approach to projecting hard boulders. And finally, we've got Steven's Outdoor Strength Zone Bouldering, which will guide you through a strength-focused bouldering session. I've used that one a lot in Waco Tanks over the past few years with great 
great results. And it's a great format for sending some of those second tier boulders and building strength out there on the rock. Check out the Crimped app at crimped.com. That's C-R-I-M-P-D.com to get started and download the Crimped app for free. And type in Steven, S-T-E-V-E-N, into the search bar in the app to try my go-to outdoor workouts. That's crimped.com or find the Crimped app in the app store. It's totally free to try. Type Steven in the search and have fun out there on the boulders. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt, and my guest today is Melina Costanza. She's such a badass. She is a two-time youth national champion, a three-time collegiate national champion, a three-time Pan-American national champion. Melina is now in her early 20s. She was the U.S. bouldering national champion in 2021. And she dominated at the U.S. lead national team trials in 2022. And some of her competition success has come at a price. Melina recently opened up publicly on Instagram about her struggles with an eating disorder and about an injury that had come from low bone density as the result of an eating disorder. And she decided to step away from competitions to focus on recovery and getting healthy again. And she opened up even more about it in this conversation. I was thrilled to talk to Melina. She's such an awesome person. She was so forthcoming and wonderful in this conversation. And I had so much fun talking to her. We spent quite a while talking about her experience with the eating disorder and recovery. And then we had a lot of fun and shared a bunch of fun facts about Melina, ranging from everything to frozen peas to ketchup to the medieval torture museum to baby teeth necklaces. I got a list of amazing fun facts from someone who shall remain anonymous, at least until later in the conversation. And it was so much fun. I really enjoyed this one. One of my favorites, and I'm sure you'll love it too. Please enjoy this very open and very fun conversation with Melina Costanza. All right. Any questions for me before we jump um, in here? I don't, not that I can think of right now. Great. That keeps things easy. And then do you have a hard out? Do you have a cutoff time today? Uh, no, I don't. Okay. 12-hour podcast. Here we go. <laughs> awesome. I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? <laughs> what would we talk about? I, I feel like every single one of these fun facts that I have here from uh, from our anonymous source could be a longer story. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But um, but first things first, Melina, it's so good to see you again. And thank you so much for being here. It's it's uh, It's so fun to finally make this happen. You and I talked probably two months ago now, maybe maybe as early as like early December, did a pre-interview and we were planning to record this. I think initially we talked like right before you had foot surgery. And then um, I think I had to bail, holidays happened, and then uh, you, you've had your head down studying and, and a, lot has, a lot has happened. But I'm so glad we're finally doing this. So thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for, for having me. Sometimes life is just like that. Sometimes things get in the way, but I'm really glad that we're making it work. I'm excited. Awesome. Yeah, me too. Um, I want to catch up on the foot surgery. 
How did it go? And where are you at in the recovery process now? Are you climbing again? Yeah, I'm starting to climb. I am only climbing with one foot right now. Basically, I have one climbing shoe on and one just Nike Air Force. <laughs> and um, I'm hopping my way up the wall right now, which is honestly really good training. Um, <laughs> the surgery went great. It was a little bit of, it wasn't super fun in the beginning when I was completely non-weight bearing for about a month and a half. But then I was in a boot and now I'm transitioning into fully walking normally. Um, I played my first basketball game a couple of days ago. Oh, nice. So yeah, so progress has been a little bit slow, but I don't know. I've been seeing seeing progress and just glad to be doing the things that I love again. That's interesting. I feel like basketball has got to be harder on a broken foot or recovering broken foot than climbing is. Is that is that true? Yeah, or? you would think. I yeah. The thing about this is a lot of it isn't really about the impact um, because what I had was a sesamoidectomy, which means that in the tendon of my big toe, basically there are two little bones called the sesamoids. And one of them was broken and had to be removed completely. Oh, wow. So it was kind of, yeah, it was cut out of the tendon. And the reason that the recovery process is longer than for a typical broken bone is because I'm waiting for the tendon to repair. And that tendon, you put a lot of strain on it when you're standing on small footholds. Mm, um, okay, that makes sense. But for example, um, if I have a really big tennis shoe on, then it really, it, it's not a lot of pressure on the tendon, even though it is pressure on the area on the foot. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And wow, Western medicine is fascinating. That's crazy that they just it really like, is. Oh, that thing's broken. <laughs> we'll just, just go in out. there. We'll just pluck that out. It's fine. You'll recover. <laughs> yeah. Are you, are <laughs> you expected? Kind of bizarre, I... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you expected to make a, a a full recovery? Do you think you'll be able to climb on tiny little footholds again eventually? Uh, I'd imagine so. I think the doctor felt very optimistic about it. It might be. I might have to do some strength exercises to kind of reinforce the area and make sure that everything, I don't know, I think things might be slightly different for me, but I'm anticipating that it won't long-term cause any serious difficulties. Okay. That's great. That's good to hear. Um, I did an episode with Anna Hazelnut about toe training. So um, I'm, I'm sure you have access to a lot of amazing, amazing coaches. You don't need me to plug my podcast to you, but... But yeah, maybe uh, maybe in a few months we can do a follow up about toe training and and see what you yeah. le you learned along the way. Yeah, I'm sure I'll learn some things and maybe I'll hit her up too. <laughs> <laughs> She's the queen. She's the slab queen, the toe training she queen. Is. And tell me about uh, your studies. So you, um, I reached out to you maybe two weeks ago. Said, hey, do you still want to do this? I'd love to have you on. And you were like, yes. I'm like, I've been heads down studying for this patent bar exam. I've got the test in two days. Um, that was about nine or 10 days ago, I think, if I'm doing the math right. Yeah, tell me, tell me more about that. So you have <laughs> dreams of becoming a lawyer eventually in the patent bar exam. Is that part of that larger process or is patent law something that you are moving towards as a career? Tell me more about that. Yeah, so it's really interesting. I have always been interested in patent law and kind of been taking steps toward it. Um, this is one of the steps because... In order to become a patent attorney, you have to pass both the patent bar exam and the state bar exam, which happens after law school. I haven't been to law school yet. Eventually, I hope to go maybe within the next few years. Um, we'll see how my timeline looks a little bit down the road. But this was the step to becoming a registered patent agent, which means that I'll be able to do a lot more in the field that I'm interested in, hopefully get a lot more job experience before I go to law school. So it was really exciting. I ended up passing you find out your results the day of. So okay. I passed the exam and 
yeah, now I'm a registered patent agent, which is really exciting. And honestly, <laughs> something that I wasn't expecting to happen as soon as it did in my life. So I'm really grateful. And honestly, having the foot surgery gave me an opportunity to really focus on something different, which is studying. Mm. Well, congratulations. I'm I'm not surprised, not to diminish it. I'm sure that's, um, you know, harder to do than you just made it sound. But you seem like someone who is very good at everything that you put your mind to. You seem like the type of person oh, where when you, you decide to do something, you do it well and you put the time in. So I'm not surprised at all, but congratulations. But that's that's really, it. yeah, you're welcome. Um, um, That's just how you, that's how you seem. And I think that's probably true. And it's just, it's interesting though. You're 23, right? Yeah, I am. You're 23. You're a professional climber. You're a badass rock climber who's already got all these competition wins under your belt. Patent law. Why is patent law so interesting to you? And when did that become interesting to you? It does probably come as quite a surprise to a lot of people because it feels like it's really far out of the realm of climbing. But I think this might be a hot take. I think maybe it has <laughs> a little bit more in common than other people might imagine. I don't know. It's all about problem solving. I really use, I got a physics degree from the University of Pennsylvania and I use physics all day long, every day. Um, wow. physics and writing and logic and you're working with clients. So it's a lot of, it's a lot of problem solving, trying to figure out what the best legal strategies are to work with your client, to get your client the best outcome. And I think that anything I do, I really enjoy the problem solving aspect. I like it to be analytical. I like to work through issues, um, approach them from all angles. And I think that is very similar to climbing in a lot of ways. Cause when you're looking at a boulder problem, it's not just about brute forcing it. A lot of it is about body position. It's a lot about looking at it beforehand, figuring out what the path of least resistance is up the wall. Right. Um, and maybe that's a stretch, but I think in general that those are the types of activities I like to pursue. And I think they're the most fulfilling for me in my work life and in my climbing life, pretty much everywhere. Yeah. Well, I can see the parallel between physics and climbing, and I'm an engineer myself, so that makes perfect sense to me, force vectors right, and totally. things like that. But does physics apply to patent law? Like that doesn't make as much sense to me. Can you can you elaborate on how those are connected? Yeah, I can. So basically to even be allowed to take the patent bar, you have to have a STEM major, um, which includes like physics, chemistry, biology, anything engineering. There are a couple other subjects, but it is primarily STEM based. So you have to be able to do that because when you're a patent attorney, you're working with engineers directly. What I do in my day-to-day -day life is work with inventors of electronic microchips and semiconductors, basically. And a lot of it is about understanding the transistors and the diode structures. And can you figure out how this electronic device works from a physics standpoint? And if you can't understand it, then it's really hard to patent it because you don't know what components are novel mm. and you can't look at the prior inventions that exist in the world and say okay here are the key differences here's the novelty in our invention here's how we're gonna the scope of the claims that we're gonna try and make on this patent mm. um, so it does really come down to a conceptual understanding of how these physical devices work which i didn't expect it to be as physics-based as it was but it really surprises me how much of my, it makes me feel like my education was worth it. So oh, that's great that's to also hear. Plus. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's great to hear. Um, no, that's, that's, uh, that's fascinating. It begs the question, what did you do as a kid? Did you, were you, were you spending all your time playing with Legos or did you, were you like taking apart electronics in your parents' house and trying to put them back together? Did you take the stereo apart with a little screwdriver and organize all the pieces? 
Um, yeah. Oh my gosh! Yeah, you're speaking my language. <laughs> <laughs> I was such a Lego nerd. I was. Yes. I was a really big nerd. Honestly, I was not an athlete. I was by far more nerd than I was jock ever at any point in my life. I think that's true about a lot of climbers, actually. But I think I never. I don't know. I always loved climbing, and I always excelled in climbing, but not really at any other sport. I was always okay, but it my interests always kind of trended toward more intellectual things. Um, if I, instead of going to like play soccer with my friends, I'd do a puzzle in the basement <laughs> or I do Legos or yeah, I would take something apart. Um, so I've always been relatively nerdy, but I think wanting to have a conceptual understanding of how things work really translates to climbing specifically. And I'm sure mm. any sport at a really high level when you break it down into the mechanics of it. Um, but for me, it really, and especially the physics aspect, like you said before, the vectors, forces, stuff like that. Um, it does really apply to climbing in a very tangible way, which is super cool. And I noticed when I took my first physics course ever, I think I actually improved at climbing, which was kind of bizarre. But oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Do you, I, I remember um, I had a conversation last year with Lynn Hill and she just put out this, uh, or she's working on this video series right now like the fundamentals of climbing, breaking down the movements and actually drawing, um, you know, swoops and triangles and and talking about things like force vectors as it relates to climbing technique and um, introducing climbing in that way. And as she was describing it, I was like, yeah, it's interesting. Like, that's something that makes sense to me and resonates with me. And like you're saying, I think climbing hooked me because of that kind of intellectual, cerebral uh, problem solving side of it, you know, it was just so much more interesting than mountain biking or some of the other sports that I, uh, you know, baseball, other things I did as a kid. I was just fascinated by trying to solve the puzzles, but I don't think that I think about climbing that way. Like consciously, I'm not like, oh, I have to make a triangle and I have, you know, it's like, it's a lot more intuitive than maybe it would seem like it might be from the outside, given that I'm an engineer and kind of have that background. I'm not like, trying a problem and thinking about angles of forces and stuff, or at least not consciously, it's all kind of happening below the surface subconsciously. When you say that you took a physics class and you got better at climbing, were you thinking about it consciously or did it just kind of inform that intu intuition maybe on like a deeper level than you, than you had experienced previously? I think a lot of it does come down to intuition. You're definitely right about that. I think where it influenced me the most um, had to do with volume climbing because then you're thinking so much about trying to have every, I don't know, I think a lot of it feels very geometric to me. And especially when I was first starting to take physics classes, volumes hadn't been that big in the United States, specifically in competition climbing or even in gym climbing normally. Um, volumes are pretty new to me. They're pretty new to everyone. And I think it gave me a little bit of an edge because it i didn't feel like volume climbing was intuitive when i started it out it felt weird it felt like pieces were sticking out way too far from the wall um it felt kind of like you were it was contortionism and i think physics helped me a lot with that just trying to break it down into components and conceptualize it and the more i thought about it in the beginning it slowly became intuitive over time as I think nowadays I don't really think about it at all, but mm. in the beginning it was a lot more conceptual for me as my body learned the movements and learned how to fit myself into these positions that were the most logical and made the most sense from a physics perspective. Mm. 
Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. That's interesting. Um, and it's funny to hear you say that because I'm 33. I'm, um, you know, quite a bit older than you and, and started climbing at 18. So a little bit later, never had like the competition background and have still kind of never really gone deeply into volume climbing, three-dimensional climbing. And I spend some time climbing technical, you know, what we could call like modern competition slabs in the gym, but very little, you know, relative to the other the other climbing that I do because I mostly focus on outdoor bouldering and sport climbing. Um, so I think of you as someone who just kind of grew up doing that, or that would be my assumption, you know? So it's interesting to yeah. hear that, that that feels like something that's new to you. Um, even though I think of you as a, a young athlete who who grew up with all that stuff, but when did that when did that come into your climbing? Do you remember like a distinct chapter or age where that shift happened? Yeah, I think I remember being youth C, so probably around twelve years old when I first encountered a volume in a competition. It doesn't. It did not look like what we have today, but I basically had a full on meltdown. My brain just kind of stopped computing. <laughs> um, which feels weird in retrospect because it didn't, I don't know if I just treated it like a hold, maybe it wouldn't have been so daunting, but I think having it be brand new introduced in a competition environment, it kind of threw me off. And then slowly at 12, 13, 14, it started to, you started to see them in climbing gyms, not all of them, but a few of them. And it gave you the opportunity to start practicing. And then it started showing up more and more in competitions as I mean, I think it's been around in Europe. Volume climbing has been around in Europe for a very long time. And I think America was a little bit slower to adapt to that. Um, I think a lot of gyms, especially commercial gyms, wanted to kind of adhere to what people understood, which was just hold screwed into the wall. Mm. Um, but as time has gone on, it has become a lot more popular. And I think, I think that there have been a lot of, there's been a lot of, positive feedback in a commercial sense, which makes gyms feel more incentivized to do it. Um, setters are starting to understand how to do it because also it's not as fun to climb on if it's not set in a very ergonomic way. Right. Um, if it doesn't make you think about it in the way that, I don't know, I think that there are a lot of factors in what makes it successful from a commercial standpoint and from a competition standpoint, but America has definitely adapted. Um, and now you see, it's very rare to see a competition where you don't have one climb that's all volumes. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. They they really have come a long way. It seems like more setters are just practicing with it, getting used to it, learning from each other. And um, I've, I mean, as little of it as I do, I've noticed the difference where I tend to go in a gym now and really enjoy that sort of thing. Like if I have a day where I'm just kind of tired and yeah. you know my fingers feel tired, whatever, it's now a really fun way to challenge myself where I feel like just a few years ago, it was a lot more like smacking into the wall and like shin scraping, you know? Yeah, <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> definitely. Like a run and jump that's not quite set right or like the, the holds are like beat out and they're really slippery and uh, you just kind of face plant into the, maybe that's just me. I don't know. I'm not very good at that sort of stuff, <laughs> but but yeah, they've come a long way and it's uh, it's surprisingly... I think I enjoy it now a lot more than I ever thought I would. It's surprisingly rewarding. It's really fun. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it can be, I think that it was a slow, it was hard for a lot of people to adapt to it and to start enjoying it and to look at it, not from, oh, this doesn't look like climbing like I'm used to, um, looking at it maybe differently as a different type of challenge, like you were saying. Right. Um, but yeah, I think that, I think gyms are doing it really, really well. And most gyms around the country have volumes and use them at least to an extent nowadays. 
Right, right. Yeah. I think as I've traveled more, I've been lucky to live on the road and travel for the last few years. Um, I think I've changed my mind about how relevant that sort of practice is for outdoor climbing too. Like I used to think, you know, I, I lived at Smith Rock for years and I was like, none of this stuff's relevant for the stuff I want to do. It, you know, why would I spend my time slipping around on volumes? And then you go to rifle and you're like, oh, <laughs> I wish I'd been doing a lot more of that. Like that would have been incredibly helpful on a lot of this stuff, this weird three-dimensional you know, slippery, squeaky, tricky, uh, blocky climbing, um, that sort of stuff can really come in handy. Yeah. Interesting. I'm curious, are you, how are you thinking about your climbing moving forward, whether that's this year, um, continuing to rehab the injury and come back to climbing? I remember you saying that, um, we were talking in December, so I don't know if you were talking about 2022 or 2023 in the future, but how are you feeling these days about pursuing competition goals versus, I remember you expressing an interest in outdoor climbing and maybe making a shift in that direction. How are you thinking about that these days? I think that uh, competition climbing is always going to be what I gravitate toward the most. I think it's where I feel really at home and really alive um, and I burnt out a bit at the end of last season and I wanted to take a break from it, but the more time I spend away, the more I want back in. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, I've been training a lot actually. And I am hoping to do maybe North America cups at the end of the season, but definitely this year's nationals next year's team trials. Nice. Um, I don't have anything definitive yet, but I miss competing at least for fun. Um, I think that a lot of the local competitions, the pro comps, the cash prize, local fun comps at a brewery with, I don't know, I think <laughs> there are a lot of really unique comps in the U.S. right now. Um, and a lot of times that can be fun and rewarding the same way that doing a national championship is. So I'm hoping to do competition climbing at more toward the end of the year and kind of spread across a lot of different types of comps. Um, but I do want to keep pursuing or start pursuing, I guess, climbing outside. Um, I am hoping as I'm rehabbing, the difficulty with climbing outdoors is that, especially if landing on pads, it can be a little bit sketchy if I'm only climbing with one foot. Um, I think that once I'm feeling a little bit more comfortable, once I'm climbing with another shoe, my goal for the year is to do a lot more sport climbing outside. Okay. Awesome. And bouldering as well, but I think my focus is going to be probably on sport climbing this year. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I wonder, um, yeah, just hearing you say that, I, I can kind of imagine that sport climbing outside would have more crossover with indoor competition sport climbing than outdoor bouldering would with indoor competition bouldering. Yeah. I think that probably is, I think that seems accurate. I don't have honestly a ton of experience, so it's a little hard for me to speak to it, but I imagine that probably is true. Um, plus for some reason, I don't know, I think that projecting a rope climb outside, I've always really loved that process. Um, it's been a while since I've done it. It's been probably since I was <laughs> 13 or 14. So about, about 10 years now, that is a little bit crazy. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I really fell in love with it when I was a lot younger. I was going to Smith Rock actually a good amount with the Ruanas. Um, I spent a lot of time with Drew Ruana and his family. Yeah. And I really fell in love with it then, kind of got out of it for a while, but that is definitely something that I want to get back into this year and hopefully travel a bit around the US. Um, 
doing that. I think that could be really cool. That's awesome. I, I love that. It's funny that you mentioned that because I actually was just Googling you this morning and just adding to my to my notes and came across your Tumblr account, which I don't think you've updated oh in, about, <laughs> in about eight years, but it was yeah. you climbing oxygen at Smith Rock. And I was like, oh, what do you know? There she is. Like she's 15 years old, you know, um, a route that I did in like my late 20s <laughs> or something. But um, you had like kind of a, it was funny to read it because it was like, I think at the time it probably felt like a pretty profound ascent, you know, and you had you had like a pretty thoughtful paragraph about like what it meant to you in a, the process of trying hard roots or something. And um, just just seeing how far you've come, I just kind of got a, I cracked a smile reading that and seeing that it was great. Yeah, I'll have to take a look at that. Honestly, I forgot that that Tumblr account <laughs> existed. It comes so. up on the first page of Google when you type in Melina Casanza. So it's uh, oh, great. That's still, awesome. <laughs> still getting some traction somehow. Yeah, or maybe, I don't know, maybe I just typed in something weird. Um, but yeah, so we're going to bounce around a little bit here. I remember I asked you what topics felt most important to you to touch on in this conversation back when we did a pre-interview. And one of the things that you wanted to talk about was mental health and mindset as it relates to your climbing and competition climbing. And, and so we're going to, we're going to bounce around and talk a little bit about that and some of the challenges there. And then I've got a whole list of fun facts about Melina Costanza from an anonymous source, a very mysterious anonymous source that I'm sure no one will be able to guess. <laughs> uh, but let's talk a little bit about the mental health stuff. I I'm curious. So you had this like amazing breakout year in 2021, um, coming back to climbing after some time off and jumping on the open circuit and becoming the bouldering national champion. And then you dominated the U.S. lead national trials in 2022. I'm curious why you quit competition climbing in college. I just I kind of revisited some posts from you this morning on Instagram and I had forgotten, I just remembered that you had taken time off in college and then come back to competition climbing. But I read this post again and I was like, oh wow, she really quit. Like in her mind, it sounds like you really had decided that you were done with climbing and that it was time to move on and focus on college, focus on becoming a lawyer or a patent attorney or whatever and leave climbing behind. Um, why is that? Why did you, do you remember why you felt like it was time to move on and, and did it feel like you were quitting climbing in college when you took that break? Yeah, it definitely felt like I was planning on quitting. Um, I planned to go to college somewhere that didn't have access to climbing gyms kind of intentionally. I thought that it could be a fresh start. I loved climbing, but I think it felt kind of like something of the past. I didn't really see myself having the potential to perform well outside of youth, honestly. I thought maybe I would do collegiate kind of for fun, um, maybe bounce around, do a local competition or two when I got older. But I don't know. I did not have a lot of faith in myself. I think I compared myself a lot to the girls in my category who were planning on going pro. And I didn't think that I had the skills or the discipline or honestly, the interest to push myself to the level that was required. So hmm. yeah, I decided to focus on academics and I decided to focus on college and making friends and starting that phase of my life. And I got to college. I did that for a little bit. And then I kind of got a little bit of an itch and I was like, maybe I'll start going recreationally to the gym. I don't know. I think that the reason I didn't before is because 
in my mind, I could only do climbing if I was going to be competing at the highest level. Mm. And there wasn't really a reason for me to do it if I wasn't going to be on the podium at nationals. Um, it didn't really feel like, I don't know, I've struggled with balance a lot throughout my life and it feels all or nothing sometimes. If I'm not going to be winning something, then why even participate? And then I think being in college, wanting to, first of all, exercise, <laughs> being like, all I do is study and party. <laughs> Quite honestly, I need to do something that has like some health benefit in my life. Um, <laughs> yeah. But being like, I need, I need something that feels like home. And being in a new city with not knowing anyone, having a lot of friends, but freshman year of college, you have friends who are kind of friends and it you haven't really formed those deeper relationships yet, I think. And climbing felt like home. Being in a climbing gym felt like it tied me back to something that felt very safe and comfortable to me. Um, and I just kept going more and more. And then I realized that I missed competitions, not just for the competing aspect, but because I missed all my friends from the youth circuit and from growing up. And mm. I started doing competitions kind of socially, but doing it made me realize that I missed competing and training and doing a lot more. I don't know. I think every stage of it reminded me of kind of what the next level would look like. And I fell back in love with it slowly and realized that I could do it at a level that wasn't the highest and still have fun. And that was kind of my intention, just to compete for fun at local competitions for a while. Mm. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. It, that does sound like a really healthy and valuable lesson to have that opportunity to see that climbing doesn't have to be this all or nothing sort of thing. You don't have to be at the top of the podium to be enjoying it. Um, you went to University of Pennsylvania, is that right? I did, yeah. Correct. Okay, for the first half of college, and then I know COVID changed your your plans a little bit. We can talk about that in a second. But um, yeah. I, I want to ask you what... I don't know what I'm trying to ask here. So I had I had asked you in our pre-interview if you had a favorite competition story that you could think of, anything that you wanted to share. I was thinking it would be like a fun, you know, highlight from from your many competitions. And uh, I asked that question and it just, you, you just went quiet. You just sat there and thought for about a minute and you couldn't think of anything. And I thought that was really interesting. And ultimately you told me, that you, this is a quote I have written down from you. You said, I'm not really having fun when I compete. And I wonder if you could share more about that. I'm just curious to hear what competition climbing means to you and why, why, why do you do it? I think that came from a time in my life, that quote came from a time in my life when I was not having any fun. And I think it was a little hard for me to see the bigger picture at that moment. Um, that was when did we first talk? Was that around October, November? Is was that it that right? far ago? Yeah, it might have been. It might have been. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was a period of my life when I was actively quitting climbing again. <laughs> yeah. um, so it was hard for me to remember times when I did have fun, I'll be honest. But I don't know. I think a lot of the end of that last season was a little bit rough for me. And I have had fun in the past. The competitions I do the most or do the best in a lot of the times I'm having fun. Mm. When I think about, I mean, I still have performed well when I haven't had fun, but now that I have a little bit more space from that, um, I've realized that I'm only going to do competitions from here on out that I want to be at. 
that mm. I'm going to enjoy that I will have fun at. Um, when I first started last season, or I guess that might've been, yeah, I guess that was last season, the North America cups in 2021. I was having a lot of fun because it wasn't about the result for me. I think that when I think of now, when I think of my favorite competition memory, it's probably the Albuquer Albuquerque North America cup 2021. Um, I didn't really care about the result at all. I had not gone back into that was my first competition back at all the whole season. And I didn't know how I compared with anyone else. And I didn't really care how I compared with anyone else. It was very introspective. It felt kind of like my f stepping away from this isolation that I had been in for years. Um, no one really remembered me, honestly. And it wasn't no one thought about me or expected anything from me. And I've realized that in the future when I compete, it doesn't really matter if anyone expects anything from me because I don't have to adhere to that or let it affect me. And I think that my plan for going into competitions in the future is to have a mindset more like that. That was a really long winded answer. But no, that was I a great that answer. Was, that was, yeah, that was fantastic. Um, no, it, it is a fascinating thing. I think like expectations and pressure, I mean, obviously how that plays into our climb, that, that plays into our, all of our climbing in a really huge way. And that gets talked about a lot on the show. And, you know, I've heard so many stories of, um, you know, letting go of pressure being like the final check mark or ingredient working towards like a big hard send, you know, with, with outdoor climbers being like, yeah, I finally gave up and it was my last day, last try and conditions sucked. And I just let go of all the expectations. Then I floated the climb and it felt like this burden had been lifted. So we've all heard that story, but I think competition climbing is fascinating to me because I mean, what you just said was, was so kind of mature and profound and maybe enlightened to realize that external expectations don't matter. Um, I imagine that's a lot harder to actually practice than to recognize rationally, you know, because it's just interesting. Yeah. So you you took this break in college and thought you would quit climbing. And I had, I had been wanting to ask you if you thought that your success in 2021 was because of that break or despite taking that time off. And it sounds like you just found this new appreciation for climbing and were able to step into open competitions without that expectations and pressure and just have fun with it, which sounds like it made the difference. But there's this kind of weird, um, I don't know if it's quite a, quetch, a, a catch 22, but you have this amazingly successful season. And then all of a sudden there's these articles popping up on the internet, like Melina Costanza, you know, America's new top climber. And it's like, damn, <laughs> that's a lot to live up to, you know? So you found this like superpower in the letting go and in the enjoying and having fun. But then all of a sudden everyone like, that all these spotlights from every direction start shining on you and people are expecting things of you. Um, yeah, I imagine, I imagine that's, I imagine that's just really hard. I imagine that's really hard for any young athlete that starts to have success. Does it feel like, do you think now that you'd be able to remind yourself? I don't know. I, I don't even know if I have a question. I just think that's, there, there's, there's like an inherent <laughs> challenge there. You know, how do you think about yeah. that moving forward? Yeah, um, there is a little bit of irony there for sure that that was, I think, what I think your mindset is honestly 75, 80, 90 percent of performance 
it's hard to reach. I don't know. You can't be amazing, of course, if you're not fit, if you're not strong, if you don't have the physical aspect of it. But I think that your mind is so much more important. And I think I was really, really in tune with myself mentally in a way that, yeah, made it kind of like a superpower for me. And yeah, it's a bit ironic that <laughs> I think as the season went on, I don't know, it was a lot very, very quickly. I think had I had a longer period to digest it, maybe I could have taken, I don't know, taken a step back, looked at it from a different perspective and it could have been, could have been different. I don't know. It, but it was a very crazy year for me. It was a lot of attention very quickly, um, a lot right. more quickly than I ever could have imagined. Um, yeah, from news news articles, from sponsors, from, I don't know, a lot of different sources, competition results. And it this might sound a little bit dramatic, but I feel like it almost corrupted me a little bit. It almost made me expect certain things from myself, and it made me believe that other people expected those same things and would be disappointed if they didn't see those things. And it also felt a little bit like if I didn't meet those expectations, everything that I was building would be taken away. So there was an element of fear also. And I think competing to win looks very different than competing to not lose. And it also looks very different from competing just to see how well you can compete whether that be first place or third place or 10th place or i don't know i think that when you don't care about anything but yourself you reach kind of a different level and i lost sight of that for sure mm. but i don't think that is something i don't know mental the mental side of it is trained just like the physical side of it and i think that pretty much with work and effort and coaching um anyone can reach a level that elevates your performance a lot. And I think that I can get back there with work. And I don't know, I'm excited for the process. I'm excited for the new challenge. I think that competing well, despite the pressure, is the next step. And I think it's exciting that, I don't know, it's exciting that that's the next thing I get to tackle, I guess. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing all that. I think it's, uh, you know, you, you started that that response by saying maybe this sounds dramatic, but I don't think it does at all. I think it just sounds like, and like, how could it not, you know, how could you not start to feel like you have nothing to gain, everything to lose when people are just assuming that you're going to dominate the next competition based on your, your recent string of, of successes. I hope that, um, that you get to a point where you don't have to quit climbing every time you start having success again. <laughs> how do you, how do you think that you're going to balance this moving forward? Are you, are you actively trying to develop new mental strategies? I know you, last time we talked, you, you mentioned that you've been reading some, uh, sports psychology books and things like that. How do you think you'll manage that the next time around? I think that the primary thing is there are a lot of things I pushed myself to do because I felt like it was the next step in my career and that it was necessary for me to be an athlete of the caliber that I wanted. And I think moving forward, I've realized that, I don't know, when I first started competing at the, I guess, 2021, every single competition I was genuinely excited for, which felt very foreign for me mm. because I had never felt that way. It was always 
dread, kind of hoping that I'd get injured, kind of hoping that I'd wow. have some reason to drop out. Yeah. And I didn't recognize it at the time because I am I just assumed that was how it always felt and that was just nerves. But going into the North America Cups at the beginning of the season, every competition, it felt like an opportunity instead of an execution or something. It felt <laughs> like I was, I don't know, I was very, very excited to compete every single time. And I've realized that I'm competing for myself at the end of the day. I'm competing because I love competing. I'm competing because I like knowing whether the training I'm putting in is working. And if I don't perform well, it shouldn't be I'm a failure. It shouldn't be something, a testament to myself as a person uh, or like my identity, an identity crisis every single time. It should be an indication that something didn't go correctly. Maybe I didn't train the things I need to be training or maybe my mindset wasn't as strong as it needed to be because I haven't been doing certain exercises enough. And I think that's how I should be treating. And I think that's a really healthy way to treat competitions as kind of data points. They're not, it's none of the competitions that I do are life or death moments. And honestly, the fact that I get to compete and be under that pressure in a pressure environment is a privilege in itself. And I feel like I lost sight of that, but my plan moving forward is to only do events and competitions that I want to be at. And even if it's a big competition and I don't want to be there, I'm planning on just not going. Um, that's kind of how I'm moving forward. I want to love what I do. And I know I'm in a really fortunate and privileged position to be able to make decisions like that. Um, but that's how I see the sport for myself. And I think that is how I set healthy boundaries moving forward. I love it. I love it. I mean, I really commend you for for that because that's always so much easier said than done, I guess. I mean, that's that kind of reminds me of something that I've been saying for like the last two years on this podcast, which is like, wow, I really... Uh, I really should on myself a lot. I really go, like go to a lot of areas and try a lot of routes that I feel as though I should be able to do or I should want to do or I should be excited to, you know, try and test myself on. And, uh, you know, this this route doesn't necessarily inspire me, but it's going to make me a better climber in all these ways. And uh, I've found it surprisingly hard to simply ask myself what, truly inspires me? What do I actually want to go climb on and then allow myself to do it? It almost feels like cheating or something. <laughs> like, like, yeah, it, it I feels too, mean. feels too easy. And yeah, I, I'm guessing you can relate to that. I, I, um, Definitely. I want to talk about, uh, I want to talk about your foot injury and, um, opening up on Instagram about your eating disorder and, and struggles with that. And a couple things really resonated from this one Instagram post that you shared. I, I thought it was so incredible that you shared this. I thought it was such a gift to all of your fans, um, all the young athletes out there for someone like you to share all this stuff and be transparent with it. So thanks for, for sharing that post. Um, you talked about how the only you thought the only way to achieve your goals was through sacrifice, and you carried the pain and the hunger that you were enduring during that chapter of your life like badges of honor, you know. And uh, yeah, that that really resonated with me a lot. I I think a lot of climbers um, either dip their toe into that or live their whole life as a climber like that, or have experienced chapters of their climbing where they buy into this idea that. I have to suffer more. I have to sacrifice more to become the climber I want to be. And I've been, 
I, I really thought that was the key for years. And I think I held myself back for basically that entire time because that turned out to not be a great strategy. But anyway, um, do you want to start by talking about your foot injury? We already talked about your surgery that you ended up having in December. But yeah, tell me about your foot injury in July. It's kind of one of the more unique climbing injuries <laughs> um, I think that I've that I've come across. Yeah, I had I had never heard of it. I had never heard of it before. I never heard of it happening to anyone else. And the fact that it was broken was honestly mind-boggling to me because it wasn't from a fall or an impact at all. Um, basically, what happened is while I was on the World Cup circuit doing one of the U.S. team training practices, I was standing on a foothold, just starting a climb. I pulled off the ground, stood on a foothold and my foot just gave out. <laughs> I was statically waiting it. And it didn't feel like, I don't know, it didn't feel like I did enough to warrant an actual injury. So I didn't really take myself seriously. And it hurt a lot, obviously. <laughs> it swelled a lot. It was very uncomfortable to climb, but it just didn't, I couldn't imagine that anything serious had really happened given the circumstances. So I, continued to climb and compete on it. Um, I had some of my best results actually of the season on it, but I came back home. It bothered me for a long time. And then I went to the doctor, got an x-ray and it turned out that I had not only bo broken a bone, but the blood flow had been cut off to the bone. So it basically was continuing to break more and more and the <sighs> bone marrow had calcified. So basically it was unable to heal itself, which was why it had to be removed. And I continued climbing on it for a while and competing on it um, because since it was going to be removed anyway, it basically didn't matter if it broke more. Mm. But what <laughs> oh I God. learned from That's that- so hardcore. Yeah, it was, it was hardcore. <laughs> it was very unpleasant. Um, but what I learned from the process and from talking to doctors was that one of the main reasons why the bone broke in the first place was- compromised bone density, um, which was a result of, like you mentioned, the eating disorder that I'd had for a while and not getting enough nutrients. Um, and that's something that can happen because of eating disorders, which is a lot more serious than I had realized. I think it was a really big eye-opening moment for me, um, a very rude awakening, being like, okay, not only am I getting little tweaks everywhere, not only is every practice kind of impeded by some injury a very small injury i don't know it, all of it felt like it would just heal with rest and time but realizing that my bone density at 22 was compromised enough where i could statically wait a hold and have it break um made me realize that i needed to make a very drastic change mm. in my life gotcha yeah kind of a kind of an eye-opening moment come to Jesus Quite. moment, if you will. Yeah. Yes, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, I, I, I can only imagine. I mean, what a strange thing to, uh, to have an injury and, and just have this feeling of like, well, it, it doesn't make any sense. Like what could I have yeah. possibly done that would, that would warrant a serious injury? So it must be fine. It'll probably feel better tomorrow. I'll just, I'll just keep going. Um, yeah, definitely. And some people were telling me, maybe it's broken. Maybe you should look. Mm. And I was like, that makes no sense. There is no <laughs> way. So that's why I delayed so long to even look at it. And then when I did it, <laughs> I felt a little bit dumb and everyone else, <laughs> all my friends felt very, very right. 
Well, I mean, that's what that's what makes uh, that's what makes eating disorders and. I don't even know if eating disorders is the right word because I feel like what you're talking about is like this deeper obsession with climbing this mindset that I have to sacrifice more and give more and work harder to reach the results that I want. I know you've talked about how you felt as though uh, your progress in climbing should be linearly um, uh, connected to the work and the suffering that you were putting into it. Like the more, you know, you're, you're doing these daily seven hour in the gym training practices and things. And I mean, <clears throat> yeah, disordered eating is, is part of that. But I think the reason it's so insidious is, and I don't even know how it works, but somehow like the distortion that your mind experiences when you're entrenched in it like that i i like you can't, just can't even see it for for what it is um like i find that really fascinating i've of course people listening will probably know this but i've talked about my own struggles with disordered eating on the podcast and i get this comment a lot it's like wow thanks for sharing that like you know it's like brave of you to share or, or things like that and i'm like i don't know if it feels that way because it took three years for me to even understand that that's what it was you know so i'm looking at it in the rearview mirror from a much healthier place physically and mentally. And now it's kind of me like processing it out loud. Um, but it's not really something that I even knew was happening until much later. So I'm wondering, did you, like when your foot broke in July leading up to that, you talked about how that had been the result of um, low bone density from probably not being nourished enough for quite a long time. Is that something that you had been aware of at any level before that? Or was it kind of... Did it kind of, uh, did that bone breaking, um, was that the thing that kind of tuned you into what was going on? Did you have awareness of it leading up to that? Honestly, yes, I did. Okay. I, in the very beginning, no. Um, I think it's easy. It's a very slippery slope. And all sports glamorize the idea of working yourself to the bone every single day. Um, if you're not bleeding and sore and every single session then you're not putting in enough work and i think i don't know it's very entrenched in sport culture i mean if you watch like the creed movies for example right. <laughs> every single it's like the training montage is the hype moment and then you defeat the bad guy at the end it's like i don't know we're surrounded by these examples of people who have sacrificed everything to get to the top and yeah that works for some people for a while yeah, it works for some people for extended periods of time, but a lot of what they don't see, I think, I don't know, it's very easy to look at someone standing on top and want to be them, but not realize what the sacrifices actually mean. Mm. And then it's also easy to ignore the dozens of other examples of people who have very happy and healthy and fulfilling lives who are also standing on the top, you know? Mm. I think yeah. we, we glamorize the suffering a lot, um, and we don't look at the picture more holistically. Um, but in response to your question before, yeah, I think in the beginning, I didn't really know that there was an issue. I knew that it what I was doing wasn't necessarily healthy in all aspects, but in terms of like calorie restricting and training, it felt like the right thing to do. And I mean, also partially because I'd taken so much time off for college, I felt like I had ground to catch up. And I felt like I had to be putting in twice as much work as everyone else to even have a chance, which is kind of why I worked myself so hard um, in the beginning. And even throughout it, I could tell that 
I wasn't seeing the gains that I wanted, but it felt like a personal failure as opposed to maybe work out half as much. And honestly, you'll see greater gains because your muscles need a chance to recover because when you're breaking them down, if you don't allow them to recover, then the work you're putting in is actually pretty pointless. Beyond a certain amount of output, you aren't gaining anything. And that was a really, really hard pill to swallow that many of the hours I put in were not helping me to any capacity. And I think that one of the reasons that I like doing it so much was also because it felt like mental toughness training also, even if I wasn't seeing as much physical gain, I felt like it was teaching me how to be resilient and teaching me how to grit through pain, um, which all felt very necessary for me. But again, retrospectively, I don't know. <laughs> Hindsight is twenty twenty, and that a lot of what I was doing wasn't the best for training or for my mental health. And before the bone break, I knew there were issues and I knew that it wasn't sustainable. And honestly, I had thought about quitting before also, which I haven't really told anyone, but I didn't love what I was doing anymore because the sacrifices I had to make kind of felt like they weren't worth it. And they felt I could sense that there was going to be a major health problem impending, but I didn't know what it was. Mm. And it felt quite honestly, like breaking a bone was in my foot was one of the least bad things it could have been. And wow. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like you got it off easy like, almost or something. Yeah. There were definitely other moments when I was a little bit scared for my health and it, it just feels good to be on the other side of that. But I did know things were not going well during while it was happening. And there were competitions. I mean, even like team trials, which I performed very well at. Um, I was contemplating not doing for a period just because it felt like it was taking such a significant toll on my physical and mental health. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I um. Yeah, I think that's that's so interesting, like the frustration of feeling like you're putting all this work in and not getting the results that you feel as though you should be getting from that amount of dedication and sacrifice, but then not like having a really hard time letting go of that strategy, because I, I think that strategy is like, and it's kind of dark and it's twisted, but it's kind of empowering in this weird way, like knowing that you're willing to push that hard and go that deep. Um, and suffer for it and things like that. That's another thing I can kind of relate to. And I, I remember feeling as though my identity was really tied up in that. Like I am the climber who's like willing to put myself through X, Y, Z, you know? And then when I, um, when I was in my own recovery process, realizing that, um, that I f physically just couldn't keep doing that. Like my body kind of broke down and I just couldn't do that. And also letting go of that, realizing like that wasn't actually a successful strategy. So it's time to do something different. It felt like personal, like a personal failure. It felt like a failure of like, yeah. like what happened to me? What happened to my willpower? Like, am I no longer that person anymore? It was almost like, like I had to let an identity die and replace it with something else. And it took a long time to figure out what that might look like. You know, it's like, who am I without, without this part of myself? And, um, 
I don't know. I think I think if you've never been through it, you kind of look at it and you're like, what's the big deal? Just like eat some damn food, you know, but it's it's <laughs> so much more like uh, like nasty and twisted and weird and uh, distorted than that. It's it's um, a really strange no, thing. Yeah. And it also comes down to the things that you tell yourself to justify it throughout the process and while you're doing it. Because it's not just, oh, I'm going to eat less. It's like, I'm going to eat less so I can do these great things. I'm going to eat less. So I feel this way about myself. So I look this way. And it is hard to break those chains of thought that you become so, so used to to thinking. It really does become a part of you. And it feels like an identity crisis having to break away from that when you've told yourself that it is what defines you and that you need it almost. It feels like a part of you so much that you need it and you start to identify with the suffering Mm. and breaking away from that and realizing that you don't need to suffer is really, really hard. And you're right, harder than anyone on the outside looking in would understand. And it's something that I never understood until I went through it either because yeah, it feels like a very simple fix. And it feels like, oh yeah, your life should be better now. Like you it should be great news. Be... Yeah, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. But it is a lot about what how you identify and what you've told yourself for a very long time. And the truths, I don't know. It doesn't it feels like everything you've said to yourself, even if you didn't believe it at first, you start to really believe. Like you think that these are truths of truths of the universe that you need to adhere to but then i guess the recovery process is kind of the reverse where you start telling yourself things that you don't believe again until you start to believe those new things Mm. um and i feel like that's kind of what i've been doing recently trying to break the cycle of what i used to think and insert new thought patterns um about no you need this to recover you need this because if you don't eat these foods, then your skin is going to be bad. It's going to rip and bleed more. Or if you don't eat like these certain things, you're not going to recover from your workout. And then why are you even putting in the work? You know, I think a lot of it is about, it feels a little silly at first trying to repeat the same things over and over again, but you really start to believe them over time. What are some of the, I'm so excited to dig into this more because I think, um, I th- you know, as much as this is something that has been talked about more in the last couple of years, I think it still hasn't been talked about nearly enough. And I, I just see a lot of climbers repeat the same mistakes or fall down the same rabbit holes with this stuff because it's such a slippery slope, like you said earlier. So I think I think uh, talking about your recovery process could be really helpful. And um, I actually received quite a few questions about this in particular, um, which I think speaks to it being a you know, a topic that, that a lot of people, a lot of climbers resonate with, a lot of driven climbers. So Yeah, for sure. But I'm, I'm curious, just um, uh, going off of what you just said, that last thing you said, what are some of the new stories or scripts that you tell yourself to try to replace some of those negative thoughts? Yeah, um, I've been working with this amazing nutritionist and she approaches everything from a very scientific standpoint because I choose to not believe things <laughs> selectively <laughs> when I don't want to believe them. But when she tells me, this is, she'll look at this graph. This is the data. These are the percentages of increased, beha- like of athleticism. And these are the things. And I, I just didn't believe anything until she showed me the numbers. Um, but 
one of the things that I avoided for a long time, which I think a lot of people do is fat because we, I, I don't know. It feels like you have a lot of people have a fear of fat and don't really understand it, which I definitely uh, related to, but I would really avoid fat. And then I started having very, very bad skin issues where at, for example, at collegiate nationals, the first day on, I taken several rest days leading into the competition and the first day on in warm-up, every single one of my tips split like vertically just from pressure. Whoa. And I spent yeah. the entire competition bleeding on every taping every tip on every single round <laughs> because my skin would just flake and bleed. And I didn't realize that it was I thought it was just a genetic thing, maybe. But then when I started incorporating more fat into my diet, I've had zero skin issues since. Wow. And that blew my mind. Yeah. Also, focus. Um in the gym or in school, for example, or in work or just day to day, it's your brain is entirely made of fat pretty much. And you need fat to have healthy brain activity. And that was another thing that kind of blew my mind. Um, after a workout needing, I was always pretty good about getting protein, but not realizing that if you eat only protein after a workout, your body needs carbs to even use that protein and it'll break the protein down and use it as carbohydrates if you aren't also incorporating carbs in a three to one carb to protein ratio after workout. And it felt weird to me that I was doing all the right, I felt like I was doing all the right things, just eating a ton of protein, but that my body wasn't even able to absorb the protein in the right way. Mm. Um, it There are just so many ways that I realized, also sleep, for example, sleep is one of the most important things you can do for recovery. And my sleep was really affected by not eating enough carbs. Um, because especially when you're eating carbs right before bed, that's one of the things that puts you into a healthy circadian rhythm. Mm. So yeah, I basically have learned a lot of things very recently that have completely changed my perspective on working out and strength. And also, I don't know, I always knew that losing a lot of weight quickly was the quick and easy way to perform well, but I didn't realize how unsustainable it was um because yeah i was performing well for a month or a couple months and then it just was on progressive decline for basically the entire season and i guess it feels a little dumb now to be like why didn't i notice that i was getting worse <laughs> every <laughs> yeah. comp yeah. and why didn't i do anything about it but you just get trapped in these in these thought patterns again mm -hmm. um but ever since I've been kind of feeling myself a lot better, I've noticed massive strength gains in a very short period of time. Really? And yeah, I feel like awesome. I had to see it to believe it. And doing it right for the first time, I don't know. I also think I didn't really give myself enough credit before. I was putting in so much work that I wasn't putting in before, but I believed that it was only because I was light that I was doing well. So I imagine that if I gained weight back, then I would never, ever be good again mm. without giving myself credit for all the work that I was putting in that I wasn't even reaping the benefit of because I wasn't fueling properly and I was in such an energy deficit. And I think by actually giving myself the nutrients that I need and putting in the same amount of work, I've noticed so many quicker and more drastic gains than I ever imagined. And I, I don't know, I guess it's my hope for everyone who has ever experienced something like that, that you at least give it enough of a true honest attempt and effort to do it the right way that you see the gains for yourself mm.
and we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Rumple. My Rumple blanket is literally one of my favorite things I own. It's so cozy. It's like having the coziness of a puffy sleeping bag with you wherever you go. Rumple's original puffy blanket is made of the same materials as your favorite outdoor gear. It pairs durable 20D ripstop nylon with a durable water repellent finish, so it's water resistant, stain resistant, and odor resistant. This thing is the best. And as I said, it's the coziest blanket you could ask for. Perfect for staying warm at the boulders or at the crag. Great for camping. I have one in my van and use it all the time. And just great to have around the house. It'll be your new favorite blanket, full stop, whatever the circumstances. And Rumpel also makes many other amazing products. The Nanoloft Travel Blanket is the size of a Nalgene when packed down and can travel with you wherever you go. And the Everywhere Mat and the Everywhere Towel are two products that I also use and love. As someone who lives in a van, those two products come in handy all the time. Go to rumple.com slash nugget and use code nugget at checkout to get 10% off your order of amazing blankets and gear. That's 10% off your first order when you go to rumple.com slash nugget and use code nugget at checkout. This episode is brought to you by Fizzy Vantage, now the official climbing nutrition sponsor of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. Fizzy Vantage is the leading brand in climbing nutrition. And just to name a few names, their pro athlete team includes Matt Foltz, Paige Klassen, Drew Ruana, Jonathan Segrist, Natalia Grossman, Melina Costanza, Brittany Gorris, Jordan Cannon, Katie Lambert, Jimmy Webb, and Daniel Woods. The list goes on and on. Basically, the who's who of high-performance rock climbing, they are all using Fizzy Vantage products. I personally love the supercharged collagen. I'm obsessed with getting stronger fingers, and I wanna make sure I'm giving my body all the building blocks it needs to make stronger tendons, so I take supercharged collagen every day. If you would like to feel the Fizzy Vantage yourself, head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off any full priced nutrition product. That's fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off your order. And now back to the show. I love that. Thanks for sharing all that. Um, I think, yeah, I want to, I want to kind of highlight that because I think it is such a valuable uh, I, what am I trying to say? I think what you just shared is so valuable. And I get asked sometimes because I have shared my own story. Like people will reach out and say like, how did you get over the emotional challenge of, you know, of recovery? Like how did you let yourself emotionally start eating more again without the body dysmorphia? How did you manage all that stuff? And I, I can't speak to, you know, I, I have no education around this stuff. I can't speak to whether or not this is, um, a global experience or just my experience. It sounds like it was really similar to yours and you're also a very sciencey person. So maybe we're just similar in that way, but similar to you, just kind of getting buy-in to like the intellectual side of things. Like, oh, I, I've seen the data. I now understand what I was doing wrong. And I can, un I can like intellectually buy into this different strategy being better long-term. 
um, emotionally, I was still totally fucked up, you know, and like, I, it feels really, oh, same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it feels really <laughs> uncomfortable to be eating this much. And I'm really scared that if I gain weight, I'm not going to climb as well and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I can buy in intellectually and just choose to trust that process for a while and see what happens. Just treat it like an experiment. And, um, and then, yeah, sure enough, I had a really similar experience to what you just described where I would do this same exact training I had done in the past and get drastically better results from it. And those results would start to compound over time. And I was getting stronger when I had always been frustrated before. And, uh, and I felt like the emotional change just followed the physical change, actually. Like, I, I saw that it was working and I felt better on the wall and I felt stronger and I started to feel, you know, quote, light on the wall, even though I knew that the number on the scale was heavier, uh, was higher because I was just stronger. I had to see all that happen. And then um, it, be, it, it kind of eventually became surprisingly easy to just emotionally buy in and trust the process because it was just, it was just working. I could see that it was working. So... Um, yeah. And I think, I think a lot of times it feels a little bit like blind faith in the beginning. Right. It feels right. like you kind of have to take this leap and hope, but I don't know, for me, it was, I pushed myself to, uh, to a degree where I couldn't imagine going back to what I'd been doing. Mm -hmm. And it kind of felt like I only had one way out and it was by doing it the way that I'm doing it now by doing it the right way. And every time I would start to question it, um, I would just kind of remember what it had been like before and how unsustainable it felt. And sometimes I'll go look back at old journal entries that I'd been making where I talk about competitions and being like, I felt like I couldn't pull today. It felt like none of my muscles were activating. Um, it felt like, I don't know, I've been getting injured every day and realizing that looking, being able to look back and think, that is not a life that I ever want again. Mm. And it's not worth it for me regardless. So I owe it to myself and honestly to other people as well. I feel like at this point to try and make it work this way. And I think that that was also one of the reasons why I decided to post about it online. And one of the reasons why I didn't wait until I was further along in the journey. Um, but I kind of posted right when my life felt like it was falling apart when I was deciding not to compete at nationals, which felt like the end of the world. Now looking back, I'm like, okay, it's one comp. <laughs> it's really not that big of a deal, but it felt like this crazy hard decision. Sure. And yeah. it, I don't know, I'd reached this kind of critical point where I knew I had to change, but I also wanted to show other people kind of, it was more vulnerable than I had ever been publicly, but I know how big of an issue it is in the climbing space. I know how many people struggle with it and also how reluctant people are to talk about it because it is pretty taboo still. Um, but if no one talks about it, then it's really hard for people to see that other people are going through it, um, that people can recover from it. And at that point, I didn't know if I could, I guess. I didn't know if that would be kind of career ending or if I'd even have the interest in continuing. But I really wanted to do it and do it right. And I wanted to show people that you can bounce back from something like that and still compete at the same level, but do it in a healthy way. And it felt a little scary because 
if I didn't do it right, I was kind of concerned that it meant that I was some sort of failure and that I'd be letting people down. Mm. Um, and it was also a level of accountability that I didn't know if I wanted at that point. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> right, 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 yeah. It was like a scary level of accountability, but I think that has also been kind of a blessing. And I knew in the moment that if I did it, then I'd be holding myself to a standard, like a public standard. And I'm pretty glad that I decided to, for other people's sakes, but also for my own, because it has made me more inclined to continue along the path that I've started. Mm. That's awesome. And uh, a perfect lead into a couple of listener questions that I have for you. Um, the first one, I'm just going to read this. This isn't even a question, but I want to share this comment from Nicole. Nicole wrote, um, what does that sound? Sorry, there's someone vacuuming the hall of my apartment. Oh, <laughs> okay. I think they just stopped. I okay, hope they great. don't start again. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> no worries. Uh, that's why I edit the show. It's all good. Uh, but yeah, N Nicole wrote, Nicole writes, I don't have a question. I just wanted to say that I really, really loved her latest Insta post and I'm super excited to listen to this podcast episode. So that was talking about your, your Instagram post from back in December when you shared uh, what you've been going through. And then Katya wrote with a question and Katya shared, um, yeah, Katya writes, it's so incredibly amazing that Melina shared her story. I, and I know many others are super thankful. My question is what inspired her to go public with her story? It's vulnerable, brave and inspiring. I really respect that. Thank you, Melina. Yeah. Um, first of all, I really, really appreciate those comments and I, it makes me happy that other people, obviously I'm not happy that it resonates with people because I don't want people to relate to it necessarily, but that kind of is just a fact of how the sport is. And I'm grateful that it is, I'm grateful that people find it helpful or at least they know that other people experience something similar and that we're all kind of in it together. But yeah, what inspired me to go public is that like I said before, it felt like an opportunity to show that, yeah, we're all in it together, but also that, I don't know, I didn't know of any other examples of people who had been public about it while it was happening. Mm. I think a lot of climbers have talked about it um, as in kind of the past tense, which is also super admirable and still relatively recent. I think that not a lot of people came have come forward to talk about stuff like that before like the past few years. Um, but I felt like doing it while it was happening would be impactful because A, it would be more, it would, it would be present and more vulnerable, maybe more emotional, but it felt like it could be impactful in a different way. And also I felt like kind of doing something that would chronicle the journey and the recovery would give people, I don't know, I want people to be able to see it as it was happening kind of in real time, not overly. Um, I don't know, I wanted people to be able to see at least stages along the way and see that it was possible. And for, I, again, for accountability for myself to some degree as well. Um, but I got a lot, a lot of messages from climbers and all sorts of climbers, tons of people in the community, which made me really grateful that I'd done it. And honestly, from some of the questions, from the conversations I'd had with 
climbers before I posted or before I even was super aware that it was a big issue for myself. Um, I remember pretty vividly having a conversation with a young athlete end of 2021 maybe and she asked if i'd ever had any issues with an eating disorder and i said no because partially because i didn't think what i was doing was a super big deal and because i was justifying it but also because i wasn't ready to talk about it and i didn't want to be defined by it and mm -hmm. i think that was also something that scared me a little bit the idea that one thing could define me but I realized that I don't have to let it define me and I can also own the narrative and disclose what I want to say um, and know that I it doesn't take away from what I've done in the past and it doesn't take away from what I'm going to do in the future. And even if I don't do anything else for the rest of my life, that it isn't my the only thing that mm. I am. Totally. I love that. That's awesome. Um so cool. So awesome that you shared it when you did and that you're including people or, or bringing people along with your journey. I think that is, that is very uniquely helpful. Like that is helpful in a very different way from sharing it retrospectively and a real gift to people. Um, and something that hasn't, yeah, isn't really happening or hasn't really happened. So it's so cool that you are helping others in that way. I'm curious, did talking about it publicly, has it helped you? personally? Are you glad you did it just for your own sake? Yeah, I think that I'm glad that I did it because I got a lot of really supportive feedback. And I think I didn't realize how much I needed it. I'm a very independent person. I like doing things by myself and I like being self-sufficient. I don't feel like I need other people to really motivate me um, in training or in work or pretty much any aspect of my life. So I kind of embrace this lone wolf persona sometimes, but it did really mean a lot getting the types of comments and support that I received from people I didn't even know, from strangers, from friends, um, from coaches, from family. It was, I think I needed it more than I realized. And I think it was something that had been looming over me for such a long time that it felt therapeutic to tell people I'd been hiding it from everyone in my life. And a secret like that also feels like kind of a heavy burden, mm. but I don't know. I don't think that it's necessary for everyone who's going through recovery to tell everyone <laughs> every detail about mm. their life. I'm not saying that that is my recommendation for everyone because everyone is on their own path and it's important to do what's going to be comfortable for you and what's going to help with your own personal recovery. But for me, that felt, it felt like I could maybe make a difference. And based on the number of people who told me that, I don't know, I'd even have parents of other climbers come up and be like, Hey, my family had a discussion about this after your post. And we learned a lot about what is going on in the climbing community that we didn't know before. So like, this was enlightening for us on other levels. I think it just had, they wasn't just about me. It was about like a lot more. Yeah. Which it felt, it felt cool that that was recognized and that people, people got something out of it also. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm sure they will continue to for, for a long time. 
Um, I'm going to read this question from Anna. Anna asks, I'm curious if Melina had anyone bring up her weight slash body composition as a concern. I would imagine it's really easy to turn a blind eye as long as the athlete is doing well. Did you have anyone approach you about this? Um, not, I had family members who were concerned, but I think, I don't know. One of the things that about being gone from the climbing space for such a long time was that I basically came in with no one really remembering what I was like in the past. So I feel like people, I don't know, I showed up and that was what people saw and what people associated with me and no one really saw the leading into that what the physical and mental changes that I made the how much more restrictive I acted and I think that was one of the reasons why people didn't pick up on it as much because it was just who I was and what people knew about me um but the people who were the closest to me I definitely had some concerns or like the people who noticed it while it was, or who knew me before, especially, um, would express concerns about my mindset around food or sometimes like how much I weighed, what I looked like. Um, all of that, it felt pretty easy to dismiss because I could justify it or I could pretend that it wasn't happening. Mm -hmm. But yeah, when I look back on it, I don't know. I felt... I didn't like it at the time, but looking back, I'm. it shows me that a lot of people cared about me, mm. which I'm grateful for now. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious if you have thoughts on this question. This is from Eric. Eric writes, um, you know, in, in response to Anna's question, yes, did anyone approach her and voice concerns? Also, does Melina have thoughts on how someone would do this tactfully? you know, bring this up to another athlete. And I, I thought about that question a lot um, through the lens of my own experience because I had a couple people voice concerns, but I was so entrenched in my own justification and narrative that I don't think anyone could have said anything that would have really reached me before I was ready, you know, which which isn't a very um, optimistic thing to share. So I don't, I don't really know how I would answer that question. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on how to bring this up with, with an athlete who might be struggling with it. Um, I think I'm in a pretty, I was in a pretty similar boat where it was kind of a realization that I had to come to personally, um, which yeah, doesn't sound super optimistic, but I think the main things that were helpful were just people showing me that they were there for me. Mm. Um, it didn't have to be, I don't know. I think that making sure you don't come across as too accusatory or I don't know. I think that the people that were the most impactful for me were the ones who listened more than they talked, I guess, which is really hard when someone isn't opening up, but sometimes it just takes time and I don't know. I think another big thing is being around people who are comfortable just like eating normally or who aren't super, who aren't judgmental about what other people eat. Um, being around people who aren't, who don't make comments about other people's bodies. Mm -hmm. um, I think it, a lot of it is about how you act and 
the being a good role model and exemplifying behaviors that are very inclusive as opposed to directly saying something. But that's only from my personal experience. Yeah. No, that's awesome. That's super helpful. Yeah, thanks for that. And then one last question about this topic, and uh, and then I think we can have some fun. I've got some fun facts. I cool. wanna I wanna run by you, see if they're true. We can do a true or, true or false. Uh, but yeah, one more question about this. This is from Zachary, um, and some of this we've already talked about. So feel free to uh, gloss over some of it. But I think there's some new stuff here. Um, what does eating disorder recovery look like for Melina? How does she manage intrusive thoughts about weight? How does she relate to high performance when recovery is a larger priority? Any additional thoughts there? Um, I think for starters, intrusive thoughts, I know we covered that a bit, but a lot of it is having having phrases kind of at the ready um, to replace the negative thoughts as they come in and being really proactive. When you have a negative thought being like, no, I'm eating because I need to be stronger. No, I'm eating because this is how you build muscle. No, I'm eating because if I don't eat this type of food now, then I'm not going to sleep well. I'm not going to recover from my workout or just having these thought processes ready and available because these mantras can be actually really impactful, especially when you start saying them over and over. Um, In terms of high performance, I think sometimes it, especially in the beginning, it felt a lot like I was sacrificing high performance for mental health and physical health. But what I've come to believe now is that that's not the case at all. And that I was actually, my performance was being compromised by these limitations I was putting on myself by not fueling my body. Um, And kind of looking at food more as fuel, but also as a source of enjoyment. Like, I think in a lot of ways, your relationship with food I don't know. Mine was really bad and I didn't, it kind of felt like the enemy for a long time and kind of taking a step back, realizing that food itself doesn't do anything. Food itself, no types of food have ever like done anything wrong. Mm. It really comes down to this is an energy source. When you break it down into its components, it really is just something that you consume for energy. You wouldn't, deprive a car of gas for any reason because it needs it to move. It needs it to do its job. And then also looking at it like food can have, there are so many enjoyable qualities of food. If you sit down and have a nice meal, if you if you take the time to savor it, if you cook it yourself and you get ingredients from the local farm, there are just so many different ways that you can respect food and treat it I don't know. That's one of the things that I think I've been working on mm-hmm. is making eating food more of an experience overall, making it like a social experience, making it, there's just so many ways that I think I lost sight of that, um, that I'm realizing that food should be enjoyable. It should be part of your day that you look forward to and you should eat the things that make you happy and anything in moderation is good. It's not like chocolate is bad and vegetables are good. It's like, everything has a place in your diet and eating in a way that brings you joy um, isn't going to interfere with competition performance. It isn't going to interfere with sports in general. It's just 
food is just food. And looking at it like that, I think has been a different and good perspective for me. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I can really, I can really relate to that. And I, I have a similar, like we've already talked about, I think I have a similar kind of intellectual approach or had a similar intellectual approach with my own recovery, but that was actually a really, a, a big light bulb moment for me was a similar thing. I was reading a book that Rob Wolf wrote and um, one of the main conceits of the book was removing morality from food. You can't cheat on food. You can't cheat with food. It's just food and you eat it and it has consequences. It has good consequences. Um, if you eat cake all day, you might not feel great. That's a bad consequence. But if you eat a little cake with friends, you might feel amazing and enjoy it and get all this, you know, delight out of it. And like you're saying, just, uh, I, I don't know where it started or where it came from, but we, I think as a culture, we do attach a lot, um, we sometimes attach a morality to food and we think we're a better or worse person depends depending on the types of things we eat. And it's just not helpful. It's not appropriate to attach that sort of stuff to food. And I, I was yeah, someone who had absolutely. like, for, for a while I had like a really restrictive way of eating and then I would have cheat days. And I think that was really harmful language to use with food. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Um, and it led to like, this kind of gnarly binging restricting behavior for me where I just had, you know, categorically like most of the food in the supermarket was like bad or cheat food. And yeah, it was, it, it took a long time to undo that. Cause I would, I would just, uh, you know, if I, if I ate a cookie or something at a friend's house, I had this narrative that like, Oh, that was a cheat food. I've cheated now that I've cheated. Fuck it. I may as well just go all in you know, and make the most of it. And it's just like, man, that just doesn't make any sense. There's no, there's yeah. no real morality there. Anyway, I'm rambling. No, yeah, definitely. And for a long time, I mean, since I was maybe 13, I didn't eat any sweets at all. Um, I completely stopped eating like any like cake, dessert, ice cream, anything like that from 13 until 23. Um, so in my brain, it was like, oh, I've always done this. This is just what I do. And like, if it, it didn't really feel like a problem because it had been going on for so long. And I was just like, I was the person who didn't eat sweets. That was just like kind of who I was. And then talking to my nutritionist, I was like, can I just keep this one thing where I just don't eat this one group of food still? Because like, it's not that big of a deal. And she was like, you, are you like listening to yourself right now? <laughs> She was like, you can't have one good hard boundary because hard boundaries inherently just aren't good. And I was like, okay, yeah, that that makes sense. But um, I think in general, just kind of, yeah, removing the label of good, bad. I think diet culture has been really, really harmful. And when you look at studies, it's also like the more prevalent diet cultures and these brands that help make like skinny products or light products, um, the greater the prevalence of that in society corresponds and correlates to higher obesity rates in the country, mm. which kind of shows that the diet culture and the whole diet narrative is really counterproductive to, toward people living in healthy ways. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. Um, this is a little bit of a, a non sequitur, but you mentioned sleep a couple times and uh, this thought just popped into my head. I just, I know I've been probably talking too much uh, throughout this food conversation, but, um, I'm in Waco tanks right now. And, um, 
for people that haven't been here, it's just really common to have these like massive days. Like you go on a tour to East Mountain or something and you have a tour guide and you meet at like 10 o'clock in the morning or nine in the morning and you climb until like 5.30 p.m. and then rush out of the park before six when it closes. And it's these massive days of being out in the cold all day and climbing a lot and hiking a lot. And um, something I, I've started to notice is that I feel like I'm just eating constantly. I feel like I'm eating a tremendous amount of food, but probably not bringing quite enough out with me climbing. And something that's um, that's become like a real barometer for me is my sleep. Because something I keep noticing is that when I don't eat enough food throughout the day, in general, not enough calories, or when I don't eat enough carbs throughout the day in particular, um, I'll really notice it with my sleep. Even if I don't go to bed hungry, I feel like I should be okay, but maybe I didn't eat enough to um, to compensate for that increased energy expenditure throughout the day. And I'll just kind of toss and turn a lot at night. And if I have, if I bring more food to the crag and if I eat a huge dinner and a big breakfast, then I'll I'll just pass out and sleep like a baby because I'm exhausted. So yeah, I don't know. That's something that was... Sometimes it's a little bit subtle because I don't feel hungry necessarily, but I think that's a real, a really strong, like really good clue. Like if you're sleep suffering, then maybe you're not eating enough. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of it just is becoming in tune with your body and realizing that your body will tell you what it needs and you just have to listen to it. And I think that also ties into, wow, this is so full circle. It really ties into mindfulness because mindfulness and being able to kind of quiet there's so there's so much external like stimuli i think in our day-to-day lives um electronic devices just being in uh really high-paced environments a lot of the time we're going out and hiking all day long like you're saying um there's just so much going on that sometimes it can be kind of mentally crowded also um and you stop really listening to your body's signals but i think sometimes by being able to kind of quiet your mind you're able to pick up a lot on what your body is designed naturally to tell you. And it knows what it needs and knows what it wants. And if you listen to it, it'll tell you. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I love that. Okay, um, how are you feeling time-wise, energy-wise? Good. Good? Yeah, I feel good. I yeah, no time limits for me. Okay, awesome. Twelve hours. We're we're two hours in. Ten to go. Nice. (laughs) I'm kidding. Okay, fun facts with Melina Costanza. Um, <laughs> uh, true or false. And then with so many of these, I would love to just hear a little bit more of the story, but true or false. Okay. I made money tattooing people in high school. <laughs> true. Um, I, yeah, I made money tattooing people. I, it was kind of my side gig. I bought tattoo guns off Amazon. Actually, my mother bought me tattoo guns off Amazon. She probably would not want me telling that. Um, but because it's totally illegal, people. right? Like, don't you have to be 18? Oh, super, super <laughs> illegal. I feel like the statute of limitations has to be like passed by now. You're probably fine. I, I'm probably fine. Um, I very illegally tattooed people in my kitchen at home. I was really sterile. I was super good about bleaching and alcoholing everything. Um, I the first dude I the first person I ever tattooed was this dude who was on the swim team and he couldn't have any thing outside of his swim area which is a speedo <laughs> so my first tattoo i ever gave was a sparkly scorpion in a dude's speedo area oh wow true story a sparkly yep. scorpion yeah he was a scorpio okay <laughs> <laughs> 
Yep. Uh, yeah, that true story. True. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, statute of limitations. But the, you know, it's not. It's not like these things are still around for people to see. You know, it's not like tattoos last forever or anything. You know. No. <laughs> no. Then no incriminating evidence. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. That's amazing. Um. Next fun fact. True or false? Ketchup is my favorite food, and I would drink it with a straw like V8 if it were socially acceptable. <laughs> That's true. I have a lot of favorite foods, but ketchup is probably number one. And I will douse everything in ketchup. My parents hate it. They get so grossed out, and they think it's t- they yeah they really hate it. But I will douse anything anything in ketchup, and sometimes I will eat ketchup with no other. It's not a condiment to me. It is a food group. (laughs) (laughs) Like how? Like you squirt it straight in your mouth? Do you eat it with the spoon? I have done that before. I used to have a full thing of ketchup in the fridge, like in the door of my fridge, and I would take it out and squirt it into my mouth. I don't do that anymore. I've gotten a little bit classier. But yeah, sometimes I'll put it into a little container and then I'll spoon it out. What are... Oh my God, this is... (laughs) (laughs) What are some of the most unlikely foods that you routinely put ketchup on? I mean, I feel like this is really going to gross people out, but I feel like ketchup on like pickles is pretty good <laughs> or like watermelon. <laughs> like not bad also. Ketchup um, on watermelon. Yikes, yeah. I mean, pickles is These just like, not, you're just, you just forgot. It's like some a burger. The, yeah. Right. You just forgot some of yeah. the other parts of the burger, but that kind of makes sense. But watermelon's really interesting. Yeah. These are things that, It's sometimes like I'll be eating something and I'll be like, dang, what if I just tried putting ketchup on? And it has never, ever been worse. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take your word for it. Okay. Um, True or false? (laughs) This paints such a good picture. These are so good. Um, Thank you to my anonymous source. Um, (laughs) True or false? My organizational skills are so good that I was offered a job at the container store purely based off the items in my shopping cart. Yes, true. I was at the container store. Here's the funny thing. I went with my friend. She checked out first. The dude did not say anything to her. I checked out second and I got offered a job on the spot because he said (laughs) that he could tell I had an eye for for interior design and organization. Wow. And then he looked at my friend and did not say anything. <laughs> <laughs> Just glanced so at her sideways know. with with a scowl on yeah. his face. Yeah. That's how I know that it was genuine. So, what what yes. was in your shopping cart? Like, was it the way it was organized in your shopping cart or was it just the, the balance of the different items? What was it that he noticed? I don't know. I was moving to college and I got a bunch of different organizational tools from my desk and from my walls and whiteboards with, I love having whiteboards everywhere and I love having whiteboard calendars, um, to-do lists. It was a lot of stuff like that. I like everything. I do really like organization. I like everything in my life being very, very clean and very organized. I like my my apartment looking like a hotel room with absolutely nothing in it and (laughs) no personality whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) No personality whatsoever. That's funny. Um, (laughs) Do you have a whiteboard in the room that you're in right now? And what, what do you keep written on your whiteboard? Like goals? I do. I have several. You have several. Uh, One is just a calendar and one is a watering schedule for all of my houseplants. Amazing. And all of their names. Their names. What are are some of your houseplants' names? Oh my God. This is so embarrassing. This really got embarrassing. Why is this embarrassing? Uh, This is amazing. This people want to see behind the scenes. They want to know who is, who is Melina Costanza really, you know, And, and your ketchup habits are critical 
for they, our listeners to, did, yeah, to really sure know are. who you are, you know? They sure are. Um, my, I have a plant named Bernard because it's an aloe plant and burn. It's like soothing the burn. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I have okay. Mike, Wazowski, Mike Wazowski is my Monstera. That one I feel like is understandable in itself. Um, I have a plant called Nick Jonas. It's a succulent. <laughs> they remind me of Sucker, the, the Jonas Brothers song, Sucker. Oh my God, um, <laughs> these are such good names. Wow. Keep, yes, and then my keep last plant is called... This is it's called Sayahasia because that was it's a snake plant and that was like a parcel tongue oh, thing wow. in Harry Potter. Because wow. I'm also a nerd, as we've covered in this also. <laughs> what does Sayahasia mean in parcel tongue? I can't remember. I love uh, Harry Potter, honestly, by the way. I don't know, but he just Harry kept saying it over and over again in the second movie, and it really it really stuck with me. Is it when so. uh, is it when Malfoy throws a snake at him, and then he's like trying to talk it down when when they're at I the dueling so. club yeah, or whatever? Yeah, 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 yeah. That is for sure what happened. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> okay, we're gonna talk about music for a little bit. Tell me about Taylor Swift. Tell me about your feelings. Oh my God, I can't even begin to tell you about how I feel about taylor swift because it's like no words can really describe it but first of all i would die for her i would legitimately that's exactly what my note says my my note says i would die for taylor swift that's exactly what it says so you're consistent (laughs) um yes i am i am going to the eras tour multiple stops and i oh i just i just feel like nothing you're like glowing right happier (laughs) i know (laughs) nothing on earth makes me happier than taylor swift and i own i was literally wearing a taylor swift shirt at the gym this morning (laughs) (laughs) i don't know how else i can i don't know what else i can say that would top i would die for her but that is absolutely true and i've said that for many years and i will continue to say that for the rest of my life yeah so taylor swift has evolved a lot as an artist there's been a lot of different uh chapters of her career have you been along for for all of it new stuff versus old stuff do you have feelings about that i'm i'm a huge i've liked taylor taylor swift for a long time but i especially love folklore and um uh, yes and then you know ever evermore is that see... the newer one love both those albums yes i i don't know if the blur is going to turn off but if you can see this is a gigantic folklore poster <laughs> okay. on my wall um that is framed yeah I, amazing i am yeah i love folklore i love folklore and evermore and honestly i've only been a fan since reputation which is kind of unusual because i feel like reputation is kind of the album that's that's um dismissed a little bit but i i jumped on in reputation and then listened to her whole all of her previous albums been a diehard fan ever since when Going or staying up for every single album drop, watching every single music video when it's released. Uh-huh. I yeah, I, it really was life changing. That moment was life changing, and that is like the the one thing that I will never, I will never not be a Swifty. She's honestly, she amazes me. And yes, she's been through many eras. She's only getting better. She's aging she like is. fine wine. She I is aging her. like a fine wine. I love that. Are you? Do you have a? Do you have a song or an album? or a playlist that you come back to time and again, or you bounce around and listen to everything? I have a playlist that is just all my favorite songs of hers. And it's all I've been listening to. I've been doing a lot of studying for the Eras tour because 
we don't know what we're going to get. And I want to be sure I'm ready. Um, ever since I stopped studying for the patent bar, I've switched paces and I'm now only studying for the Eras tour. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I would say, yeah, my favorite album, Folklore, but my favorite song style in 1989. Mm. Okay. That's great. Final answer. Great, great answer. Final answer. Thank you. Are you studying so that, like, what's the end goal there? Are you studying so that you can fully appreciate every song she plays, so you can sing along to every song she plays? What's the what's the it's, end game? Yeah, the end. Nice. <laughs> oh, end game is one of her songs. Sorry, that was, <laughs> wow. I'm really exposing myself now. Anyway. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, I want to be able to scream every single word. I already know all the <laughs> lyrics to all the songs, but I want to freshen up everything from like old 2006 Taylor. You know, okay. it just, it's all about refreshing it right now and making sure that I'm like primed for the concert. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's great. Okay. And then switching musical genres a little bit, Doja Cat. Do you have a favorite uh, Doja Cat song? Uh, yes. Yes, I do. I do a lot of rapping Doja Cat. Yeah, we're, we're getting time. there. Yep. I've memorized a lot of raps. I think my favorite is probably Say So. I know that's a very one for classics, um, but I can rap quite a few of her songs. That's my favorite, though. Okay. How does that one? How does that one go, Melina? <laughs> I can't. I can't seem to remember it off the top of my head. How does that go? Oh, can't you? <laughs> Well, you're in luck. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, let me Do you need check a beat? My chest, my... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, actually, there's going to be a Zoom delay. I, I can't. I can't beatbox. All right. What? All right. I got this. I can do this by myself. <laughs> all right. Ready? Let me check my chest, my breath right quick. He ain't never seen it in a dress like this. He ain't never even been impressed like this. Probably why I got it quiet on the set like zip. Like it. Love it. Need it. Bad. Take it. Own it. Steal it. Fast. Boy, stop playing. Grab my ass. Why you acting like you shy? <laughs> Shut it, save it, keep it, push. And why you beating round the bush? Knowing you want all this woman. Never knock it till you try. All of them bitches hating I have you with me. All of my saying you mad committed. Realer than anybody you had and pretty. All of the body I the ass and titties. All right, there you go. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, that song. Okay, right, right, that right. That right. song. Yeah, now you remember. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember. I want to see a wrap-off between you and Allison Vest. Have you ever heard her rap the periodic table of elements? You'd probably be so into that. Um, I probably would be one very into that. One geek I to another. To yeah, I want to see a wrap-off. I'm going to hit those, her up, actually. Those I'm are the only two. right after this. Okay, perfect. Yeah, okay. And then, <laughs> you know, if you two are free, we can just jump on a Zoom call, record that for the podcast. You know, no problem. Yeah, that's, that's, I would love that. Would love that. <laughs> okay. Let's make it happen. A wrap off. Um, what else do we have here? We I have so many of these. We could we could do hour we could do hours wow. of, of uh, fun facts. <laughs> we could do a speed round. I could just true or fact true or false, no context. <clears throat> okay, let's do a few speed round. That's great. True or false, my favorite animals are sharks. True. That says a lot of it. These are all true, by the way. These are all just like facts that I got about you. So they're all true. Um, but that says a lot about a person that their favorite animals are sharks. That's really funny. I, I want to psychoanalyze that, but we'll save that for round two. Um, I won the regional championships of National History Day for my essay on the meatpacking industry in the early 20th century. 
True. That is another thing that shows how nerdy I am. I love writing essays and I love history and I especially love it when it has to do with the meatpacking industry, apparently. What did you, I have to double click on that. What did you learn about the meatpacking industry? I mean, that's a long time ago, 20th century, so early 1900s. Yeah. Early, like 1907, I think was when this giant expose came out. I'll keep it very brief, but it was messed up. It was like, there would be actual rat poisoning and rat feces oh. going into meat Whoa. products and people were getting super sick and like toxins and stuff. And the food and drug administration didn't exist yet. And it kind of exists because of this whole giant disgusting scandal when someone wrote wow. this expose. Yeah, it was messed up, but really, really interesting for someone like me whose favorite animal is a shark. <laughs> <laughs> um, what class was that for? Uh, it was for just a history class in high school. Okay. The Regional Championships of National History Day. I didn't need, I did not know that was a thing. It's amazing. Most people don't. <laughs> Do you have that next to your, you, uh, you have Bouldering National Champion Trophy and then you have your Regional Championships of National History Day award next to that uh, one? I do have it still. And I'll be completely honest. When I showed my mom that, like my plaque from it, she said she was more proud of that than she's ever been for any of my climbing accomplishments <laughs> in my life. So she's, I think she actually has it. <laughs> she has it. That's amazing. Yes. Says a lot about your your parents. Uh, <laughs> says, says a lot about her. I, I should say her priorities. Yeah, her priorities. Um, do your parents? <laughs> this is a serious question. Do your parents support your climbing? Do you feel any sort of pressure from your parents to lean into the lawyer route versus the the athletic climbing route? Do they do they get it? Do you feel like they get it? I feel like they get it. I feel like maybe for a while they didn't, but I th- think that was kind of natural. We come from a very academic focused family Sounds like and it. it's always been like, I can't go to practice unless I've done all my homework when I was younger or like I can go to these competitions, but like my grades can't be affected by them. Um, stuff like that. And I think I'm glad that I have always been academic focused because I, I think it's been really good for my time management skills and my organizational skills um, just generally, I think I, I'm grateful for having that upbringing, but they really understand it now. Um, they are excited about me doing patent law. They're excited about me going to law school, but they aren't putting a time limit on anything. They are really supportive for me to find my own journey. And I think that they also realize that I am really committed to the academic path, to the legal path, and that I want it for myself and I'm willing to work for it, but that I also want, I think I owe it to myself to do the climbing thing for a while and to see what I can do and what I can be. Um, And they really respect my decision to do that. Hmm. Um, So yeah, they've been super, super supportive. That's awesome to hear. Yeah. I I feel like, uh, I feel like if you're a parent out there and you have a kid like Melina, you shouldn't be worried about them uh, (laughs) based on all the things that you've done in your 23 years. I'm going to show them this podcast and let them hear that for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, where should we go next? I have more of these, but we could also take a break. I do want to uh, ask you a few questions about your training. I know you love talking about training. Um, should yeah, we, totally. Should we dig into training a little bit and then come back to more fun facts later? Cool. That sounds great. Okay. How are we doing on time? Two hours? Oh, this is still a short podcast by the Nuggets standards. <laughs> okay. Training. Yeah. So I thought it was really interesting to hear about the training that you did during COVID on your home wall with your brother. I actually have a few questions 
about that. Um, it sounds like before that, or maybe maybe it was after that um, in 2021, you can kind of correct my timeline here, but you've had periods where you were just, you know, just wrecking yourself in the gym, training seven hours a day every day and, and just doing way too much. Uh, it sounds like this chapter of training on your home wall with your brother was really positive or productive or informative for you. And I'm just, I would love to hear more about that. You said you were, you said that it felt really good to be in a knowledge bubble at the time, just kind of block out the rest of the world and the rest of climbing and just climb with your brother on the home wall. Why was it such a good time for you? What were you two doing right? Why do you think it was, uh, what was so great about it? I think that it was really amazing for a lot of reasons. I think when you talked about the knowledge bubble, um, that was a really big part of it because I mean, first of all, we were really lucky. We felt really lucky to even be able to climb. We felt like it was such a privilege to have the wall at our house um, because a lot of people weren't able to climb. A lot of people were just trapped in their house. And a lot of people were, I mean, it was a really terrible time for many, many people. And we were just very fortunate um, to not be as affected by that as a lot of people were. So I think that it came from a place of gratitude which a lot of the time is a really healthy and positive place to be coming from when you're training. And I think that's what I try and maintain now. Um, Gratitude for even being able to do the sport, gratitude for having a gym membership, gratitude Mm. for having sponsors who are supporting me through this, gratitude for having a job and having balance in that sense in my life. There's a lot to be thankful for. And training is a privilege. And I think a lot of people lose sight of that. but that is kind of a lot of the place that we were coming from in that respect. Also, yeah, the knowledge bubble, not really caring what other people were climbing, not caring what grades people were doing, not caring what people were doing in the gym, because no one was posting about climbing really for a period of time. And we also just didn't really care what other people were doing. We were on our own wall. We were creating climbs for each other. We go out every single day because there was nothing else to do. I do school remotely and then I go outside to the wall and it'd be <laughs> snowing and we had this tiny little space heater that we'd huddle around and every day we'd go out and we'd have to fight the spiders off of the wall before <laughs> we got on. Um, but it was just such a fun period of time because it wasn't about grades. It wasn't about comp performance. It was just about training to train, training to have fun, training to improve, training to get out of the house, even if it was just in our backyard. Hmm. Um, And we felt really lucky every single time we got on the wall. And it was like, it was a fun thing for us to do to bond. Um, I was in college for several years before that. And I got to come home, spend a lot more time with my brother. We hadn't really hung out that much because I'd been across the country um, for a while. And it felt like a really great opportunity for us to be doing something together, like as siblings. Um, I don't know. I think the theme of the whole thing was just gratitude which felt like a really, really healthy and fun and nice way to approach the sport that we both love. Oh, that's such a cool answer. That's awesome. Is, is he older, younger? He's younger. He just is, he's finishing his last year of youth competition right now. Okay. Um, but he is very, very good. And I mean, when I got back from college, he was so much better than I was, which I think was also another really amazing thing for me being like, wow, he is way stronger than I am. I am just chasing all the time, chasing, chasing, chasing. And I think that I learned that that's like a really good place for me to be in as well. Mm. And my favorite way to approach 
competition or for, to approach training in general is just being with someone who pushes me. But at the same time, we were having fun the entire time. It felt competitive, but in a really fun and positive way. Yeah. And those are the training partners, the types of training partners that I prefer because it always, it's less about, oh, like you performing well threatens me. It's like, we both want to see each other do better. We both want to elevate each other's performance and we can brag to each other and we can, I can be like, you did not try, <laughs> get back on the wall. You did not try hard on that. And he could be like, yeah, no, I did it. Um, so we can kind of like, we can joke with each other. We can have fun with each other. But at the same time, we really both want to see the other person do well and thrive. That's so cool. That's so cool. Um, have you been able to bring that forward with you? Like how, how do you think about that chapter of your training and climbing looking forward? Are you able to kind of find some of that in, in Salt Lake City? Yeah, I think that to a degree, yes. I think that it's a little hard for me. Um, I said before, I'm kind of a lone wolf type. I really like training alone. I really, a lot of what I do to train now um, feels pretty personal and vulnerable and introspective. And I kind of like having the space to do that in isolation. But at the same time, I do have people who I can train with and have fun with. And I think that is kind of the main part that I was missing for a long time is the ability to go to the gym, have fun, push each other in like a positive, healthy way um, and not have it only be about grinding and beating yourself down, but sometimes have sessions that are about lifting yourself up, you know? Mm. Well, that's super awesome. Yeah, I love, I love hearing that. And then uh, as far as like what you actually are focusing on in your own climbing, I know you have the the foot injury that you're recovering from, um, but how do you think about your progression as a climber moving forward and how does your training fit into that? Are you, um, I, I don't know, are you focusing on, on like a certain aspect of your training or practice in climbing these days? Um, what are maybe I'm asking like what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned from doing too much and maybe being too fixated on that sacrificing approach and beating yourself down? What are the things that have that have stuck around that you still feel are important for your progress as a climber when it comes to training? Right now, I am doing a linear training program for the first time in my life. I am working with someone who's very knowledgeable. Um, has an educational background in it and also a lot of competition experience um, herself. And I, it was really, really hard for me because I'm in a strength block right now. And a lot of what strength training is, is the exact opposite of what I've always done. Totally, it's about yeah. few reps, tons of rest, maxing out every single time and then being okay, walking out, not feeling sore at all. Mm. And it was a very, very big adjustment for me because what I had always done was about reps until I couldn't do another one, leaving the gym feeling like I couldn't like move and then being wrecked for days. And I think that still has a time and place to a degree, but doing the linear cycle, having to go immediately into this portion of the cycle that is so different from what I've always done felt really outside my comfort zone. And it took a lot of trust and it still takes a lot of trust and a lot of questioning, but having being about a month or so in, um, maybe a little more and seeing as drastic of results as I have seen recently. And I think a lot of my issue before was lack of strength. 
I think I have really good movement. I think I am very good technically on the wall. And I think I was strong, but a lot of it, again, was because I was light. I never put the time and effort in to actually gain strength. And it's really, really cool and really fun seeing the numbers go up and having actual data and being able to do things differently than I've ever done. And it felt like my, I was so hyper-focused on what I knew and kind of ignoring scientific understanding of exercise science, you know, like I kind of did what I thought was right without looking into, without actually doing it from an educated standpoint Yeah, yeah. and now doing it the right way um, and trying something new. I don't know. I've struggled to be adaptable in the past and I'm trying to work on being better about that. And it has been really rewarding for me. I'm excited to go through the next stages of the process. And I think kind of a long-term goal, a long-term goal is competing more, but mostly it's about just being better, like period, which I know is super open-ended, but I want to go into the gym and keep improving at like just gym climbing. It's, (laughs) I like feeling better, um, which is, yeah, it's, it's open-ended. It's not really a specific result. But I think for me personally, removing the result, removing competition results, removing numbers from the training and from the motivation specifically um, has been really helpful. And Mm. I'm just excited about the process of improvement, regardless of how I choose to, whether I choose to use that outside or in competition or whether that has to do with placement or qualifying for different events. I'm really just excited about the process of feeling strong, which I think is different from anything. I've never felt that physically strong before, and I'm excited Mm. for a new stage, I guess, of the process. Yeah, it's exciting. That's awesome to hear. What have you noticed? (laughs) Like, what are the what are the specific things that you've really noticed shift in your strengths? Is it like certain exercises that you've seen lots of progress in, or? Yeah, I I feel like I've always done a lot of core but I haven't done a lot of, I was doing some pulling stuff for a while, but nothing measurable and nothing very specific. And I've been doing a lot more pulling and I'd never ever done fingers before. And I'm starting to do fingers for the first time ever. And I, for some reason, had this preconceived idea that you couldn't really strengthen your fingers, which is dumb. And I should just have like talked, talked, had one conversation with Allison, but um, <laughs> yeah. I just, I was like, no, these are the fingers I was born with. This is just what it is. Yeah. Um, I think it's because you don't really have like muscles in your fingers that I assumed that it was just what it was. But again, a very uneducated approach to climbing and performance. Um, so yeah, I've been doing a lot of finger strength training recently for the first time and actually measuring them with data, like actual force, um, using force, force measurement devices, logging them, graphing the data. Um, and not only is that kind of cool and nerdy, but it is, you can see trend lines changing, which is really motivating for me. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah. Super cool. I just, uh, I recently got a tin deck. Um, those that guys, was, that's exactly what I used. Yeah. Dude, those things are so sick. It's so sick. Game it's, changer. it's so much fun. It's so much fun. And yeah. It's, Seriously, I, yeah. I, I remember um I remember thinking like I don't want my training to be that quantified. I don't want, you know, more gadgets. I don't want it to be that high tech because I want to keep it really simple. 
Um, and so I was resistant for a long time. And finally, I talked to Tyler Nelson and um, Jorgen at Tindek hooked me up with a Tindek. And it's actually, I was thinking about it totally backwards. Like, it's amazing how effective you can train with like a block of wood attached to a Tindek. And that's it. And a sling, you know, that's like all you need. And um, it's been really helpful. It's been really interesting and helpful for training itself. But it's also like, it's kind of fascinating. It's such a good diagnostic tool to see how you feel that day. Like if you do some fingers as part of your warm up for climbing, it's, uh, y- y- you can't really hide from the results. It's like pretty yeah. eye opening. Like, oh, today I'm really strong. Oh, today, like I have to really try hard to hit these kind of normal numbers for me. And I'm clearly not fully recovered yet. So maybe I should change my plan and like not go try the crimpy project or whatever. I've, I found it really helpful for that. So. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And some days also you're not feeling that great, but you pulled really good numbers and you're like, okay, mm. maybe like you, maybe it's worth it to like kind of remove my self-perception a lot of the time because it yeah. isn't always accurate. Um, yeah, I think that, yeah, sure. There's a danger in getting too entrenched with the numbers and being like, why am I not hitting my exact number? But it can also be motivating seeing the scale, reading it and watching it go up and be like, okay, pull like just a little bit harder, just a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I've been having a lot of fun with that. That's awesome. Um, what's the hardest thing you've climbed with one with one foot? Uh, it's hard to say at the Boulder <laughs> Projects because a lot of the colors are are. I mean, they do it by color scale. But right, right. I've been right. able to do some of the some of like the whites, which is the hardest part, the hardest range, um, and some like I don't know. I've been doing mostly a couple moves, like two, three move things right now like i'll pull stuff up on the kilter board um or the yeah usually the kilter board that's kind of what i've been doing the most of right now um but pulling something up that's harder than what i could do especially with one foot and just trying to max out completely max out in a two three moves even if i'm starting in the middle even if mm, i'm falling that's cool. pretty regularly but it's kind of that's been another thing that's been hard for me instead of focusing on the sending um more focusing on the process which is maxing out and being okay not topping things totally yeah totally yeah that's yeah that's great growth (laughs) (laughs) no it's awesome i love it i love the thought of you having uh one-footed gym projects that are only like half of actual boulders i think that's just like (laughs) that's amazing (laughs) the games the games we play the things that a lot get us of the psyched. training I'm doing looks a little bit weird from the outside right now, but yeah. sometimes you just have to try and not be self-conscious. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, yeah, it's great. I think it's inspiring. No one else, no one else is judging it. Awesome. Okay. Um, I was joking about taking up 12 hours of your time. I'm not going to take up too much more of your time here today. Um, I've loved talking to you. It's been so much fun. Let's uh, let's tackle a few more fun facts, and then I have a few final questions for you from uh, Tyson Shaney. He submitted a couple questions for you. I think those would be fun to wrap oh, awesome. up with, and then I think I'll let you go about your day. Um, but let's see, what do we have here? <laughs> this is, these are so <laughs> God. These are so funny. Okay, <clears throat> true or false? We already know it's true. Um, when I was growing up, my parents told me frozen peas were ice cream, and now frozen peas are my favorite dessert. Yeah, true, true. I think that people can knock it, until, but they, they, everyone should just try it. I would recommend trying it. Seriously? <laughs> frozen like peas? Little, just a bowl of frozen peas. It's like the perfect consistency. Do you put ketchup on them? And it's like dipping dots. 
I actually haven't tried that, but you're <laughs> yeah. you're giving me ideas. Um, it's like Dippin' Dots. That's there's no way it's as good as Dippin' Dots. There's no way. Are they actually I don't good? Know, it's, like, it's it's like a savory dessert treat. Okay. Do you put anything on them? No, okay. nothing. All right, I'll try this. I will try this. <laughs> Please do. Please do. <laughs> <clears throat> and I will never speak of it again. Um, okay. Let's see. This one's this one's funny. Uh, I hope this is true. I used to keep all my baby teeth after losing them so I could one day make a necklace out of them. She's cracking up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think that they still probably are somewhere. I was going to make a necklace out of them. Um, but then the older I got, the more I realized that that was probably not socially acceptable because someone would not realize that they were my own and they would think that I had... <laughs> Just collecting I, I children's teeth. I don't want to know teeth. what conclusion yeah. people would jump to, but yeah. I realized that was no longer an option for me. Yeah, you'd end up on like a watch list for sure. Definitely. <clears throat> uh-huh. Okay. That's amazing. I hope you find them. I hope maybe a bracelet, maybe something a little more like an anklet, something more incognito, you know, where yeah. it's a little more subtle. Mm-hmm. It's like, is she wearing an anklet made out of teeth? Yeah. And they're never I like really, they're idea. never quite sure, you know? <laughs> you can have that. You can have yes. that idea. You're welcome. Okay. Okay, great. Yeah, thank you. Thank um you. <laughs> Is it true that your dream career is a forensic pathologist? Yes. And how so does how does I, that fit into what you're doing? Cuz I thought you you're b- becoming a patent attorney. What's going on there? So, patent attorney was like the practical route. Okay. Forensic pathologist is my dream career, but that would have involved going to med school, which is something that I was not prepared to do. <laughs> Why? Isn't law school just as hard? No offense to lawyers three... and, and doctors. I have no idea what... Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Law school is three years. Med school is four, but then you also have the residency, right. which okay. makes it... And you kind of just get moved wherever. Um, I think that med school is just very, very... It's a lot. Yeah. It's a very big commitment. Um, I think forensic pathology was more like my dream always growing up but not really the the thing that the practical thing um i used to when i was like seven maybe i had these forensic pathology like dvds and i would watch it was like (laughs) all about these like they would just like do these autopsies and it was so interesting (laughs) watching them and like having them be like Oh yeah, they died of these things because they had these like strangulation marks on this side of their neck. Like, and this is real. This know. isn't like I was imagining that you must have watched a lot of CSI or something. You know, like the is the forensic um, pathologist the person where they're like, okay, like you know, where, where the camera like goes inside the bullet wound and they're like doing a voiceover and telling you how the person died on CSI. I was imagining it was that person and it was from like a television show, but you're actually watching real autopsies like dvds of real autopsies is that right yeah it was like it was like documentary footage where like an actual <laughs> forensic pathologist would why did you have those at steps. seven years old <laughs> because my family knew how much i liked that stuff and they gifted it to me it was <laughs> i don't know i think a lot it's like nature nurture i don't know <laughs> this is amazing i was met yeah they weren't just like things that belonged to your parents you were actually given these as I was gifts. gifted these things. Yes, that's that's true. And then another fun fact I'll say very quickly is that the summer of COVID, I had an intern, internship set up to work at an autopsy lab, 
but it was canceled because of COVID because there was such an influx of, well, this is really dark, but there was like an influx of bodies. So they couldn't take interns. Wow. So that was the reason I didn't do it. But yeah, I was, summer of 2020 was supposed to be me at UW autopsy and after death services. <laughs> I, have, I have no words. That's incredible. It's never, t- you're only 23. You know, you could have a whole career as a lawyer and then go back to medical school and that is achieve true. your your lifelong dream. Yeah. Or I could not go to medical school and just do it under the table. <laughs> Tattoos and autopsies. Kidding. Joke. Joke. That was a joke for everyone listening. That was a joke. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> Let's see. What else do we have here? I'll skip a couple of these. They're all good, but there's there's some that definitely shine brighter than others. Um, okay. For snack time in kindergarten, I brought in raw octopus to share with all my classmates. Yeah, that used to be... Ketchup is my current favorite food, but octopus used to be my favorite food in kindergarten. And we had like snack time sharing things. Did you eat it raw? Yeah, it was just like 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 sushi. Okay. I brought in octopus, like taco, octopus sushi for everyone in the class and no one else ate it. (laughs) I got a lot of people's. (laughs) You're such a fascinating person. Uh, (laughs) This one kind of fits in with that. This, this, again, this is one of those things where it's like, huh, it says a lot about a person potentially. When I traveled to London at age four, my only request for the trip was that we visit the Museum of Medieval Torture. Jesus Christ! <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, she, they, they didn't hold back. You're this, this anonymous source. Uh, they didn't hold back at all. They didn't shy away from the, the controversial stuff. Yeah, absolutely not. That was my request, and I think these are all kind of along the same theme. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you're learning. You're learning a lot about me. We're all <laughs> learning a lot about you. Yeah, yeah. Sure are. <laughs> uh, we can edit any of this out if you're uncomfortable with it. But um, but no, no, this, it's completely this fun. Is, this this is completely so, fun. This has been so much fun. You've inspired me to get house plants and to give them thoughtful names. You've Yay. inspired me to be more transparent and vulnerable and honest with others and share the journey because you're doing such an amazing job of that. And you're fucking awesome. Um, you're so much fun to talk to. You have so much. Thank you. You're, you're really well spoken. You, for like a, you know, you call yourself like a nerdy kind of scientific STEM person. Uh, I noticed this in our pre-interview too, but you just seem so comfortable in your own skin. That's something that I noticed right away. And you seem like you speak in almost finished prose. It seems like you are very articulate, very comfortable um, doing interviews like this. And yeah, it it. You seem very confident too. I'm just like, man, this girl Thank like, yeah. <laughs> this girl knows that she's, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. You just seem very confident. I think it it took time. It took a lot of time to develop that comfort and confidence. Um, but I think that that being more authentic has been, has never ever been something I regret, I've realized. So even if that means everyone listening to this knows that I went to the torture museum at age four. I mean, I don't know. I like being authentic. I like sharing things that are meaningful to me and that I'm excited about. Because a lot of times it's the things are very weird. But if I'm excited about things, then maybe other people are too. (laughs) (laughs) 
trying to build that stoke for the torture museum. Was it everything you hoped it would be? Do you remember what you oh, actually... Oh, I still remember it. I still remember some of the devices. And yes, it was everything I hoped. It was extraordinarily interesting. Yes. Yeah. You know what? I shouldn't like... I'm kind of laughing along with you um, with all this, but I was the exact same way, man. When I was a kid, I traveled a lot. My dad would... Uh, he was a lawyer and he would get sabbaticals every five years for six months. And when I was 10 years old, we went over to Europe and I don't remember where we were exactly, but we went to some medieval torture museums as well. And I was fascinated as a kid that, you know, played with the Legos that had the swords and all the medieval stuff. And I would build like catapults out of wood in my garage and things as a kid. I was fascinated by all that stuff. And to think back, it's like, same. yeah, it's like fascinating to think back and think that like those stuff, those things were actually used. Like that's kind of horrifying and dark, you know, it's, it, I don't yeah. think I had that sort of like perspective on it when I was a kid, but uh, yeah, I, I was similar. I loved that sort of stuff when I was a kid. Yeah, no, it was very, it's like very disturbing, but also, I mean, it's history. It's yeah. like kind of interesting to learn more about the past, but also, yeah, I loved sword fighting. I was a big sword fighter. I actually, what do you mean you were big? So- oh, you Sorry. I was a com- I was as competitive at fencing as I was at climbing no for way. a while actually and it came to a certain point where it was just really hard to commit to both um equally and my mom made me choose between she was like I just can't keep driving you to both practices like 4 <laughs> days a week for each that just doesn't make any sense. Um so she was like commit to climbing or commit to fencing. But choose fencing because it's in the Olympics. <laughs> um, and <laughs> yeah. then I chose climbing. And yeah, the rest is history. Yeah, but now it's in the I Olympics. Still, so. Fencing always will always have a place in my heart. How old were you? Like how how long did you do fencing? I, I think I stopped when I was probably 11. So okay. I was still pretty young, but I did it for maybe three years. Okay. And did it pretty competitively. Yeah. And do you have any Olympic aspirations? I potentially, I mean, by not doing this nationals, I put myself out of the running for the 24 Paris Olympics. Um, But I mean, that was one of the big reasons why it felt so like such a big decision. Yeah. Um, But I don't know. I think that I have some growth to do before I decide whether or not that is for me. I think it always, I always assumed that it, had to be kind of the next step because everyone told me that was the next step for me. But I, I don't know. I think I need to decide what I want. Mm. And if that is LA 28, then maybe that's something I'll try for. And if it's not, then I think, I hope I get to a place where I'm okay with that. Cause right now I think I'm pretty okay with not having tried this season. Nice. And I'm, that's awesome. Yeah. So we will see. We will right. see. It would be cool. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, let's wrap up with a couple questions from Tyson Shaney. Uh, for people listening that don't recognize that name, Tyson's been on the show a couple times. He is the head coach of the Vertical World team in Seattle, a very, very prolific climbing team. And uh, I'll, I'll ask a couple of his questions in, revor- uh, in reverse order here. Um, <clears throat> yeah, some big names that have come out of that climbing team. Tyson asks... You come from a generation of fairly successful, fairly successful, Jesus, very, I'm going to replace that with very successful vertical world climbing team athletes. For example, Drew Ruana, Sydney Trinidad, Sean Bailey, Quinn Mason, just to name a few. 
Was this helpful for you? How did this affect your climbing as a youth and does it affect you now? Yeah, I think growing up in an atmosphere where everyone's goals are similarly aligned um, creates an environment where practices are very focused and deliberate, um, where we can have fun together, but also keeping larger goals in mind, not really goofing off in a way that's counterproductive. Um, I think that I'm really lucky to have grown up in an environment like that. And I, I'm so grateful, especially I, he mentioned Sydney Trinidad. Um, she and I were in the same category growing up and best friends all throughout the youth climbing circuit. And that could have been very competitive in a negative way. And I know a lot of, for a lot of people, it was having someone so close, but always competing against you in every single competition. Um, but that relationship taught me what it was like to have a best friend and have someone who, whose success you care about so wholeheartedly, even mm. if it comes at the expense of your own. Oh, that's cool. And that relationship was really formative for me. Um, I think that was, it was unique and I'm really lucky to have grown up with that because I think it's kept me grounded in a way that, I don't know, it's hard to root for the people who you compete against. It just inherently is. Um, but it's not that hard if you realize that climbing is an individual sport and you can, your result only depends on you. Mm. You can only do so much and it, you, it, rooting against someone else doesn't affect your performance. Um, mm. Mm. And that's cool. Yeah. I think that taught me a lot of really valuable lessons, but also just being in that environment was super, super helpful. And I'm grateful for that. Nice. That's awesome. And then I think it's, I think it's a great thing to wrap up with advice. Tyson asks, what advice would you give to young climbing athletes who have hopes and dreams to be on the U.S. team and compete internationally or, or any climbing team, um, if, if, you know, for people that are listening from far off places, but yeah, any advice for young climbing athletes? Yeah, I think that one of the biggest things that I, I mean, we've talked about this a bit throughout the, the episode, but it's really, really easy to get sucked in very close to feeling like you need to sacrifice for your dreams, feeling like you need to beat yourself up a lot. And I don't know. I think that we all do this because we love it. I think we do this because it's fun. I think we do this for the communities that we get to be involved with. I've met a lot of my best friends through climbing and I have a lot of very close relationships that started when I was five years old, six, seven years old. Um, and we do this for the people. We do this because we love the sport. We do this because we love to grow. Um, we love to go to competition competitions and show how hard we've worked. Um, but ultimately it shouldn't ever be something that causes you pain or fear or there's a certain level of suffering. Sure. That, I mean, hard work is hard work. It's difficult. It is inherently going to challenge you, but there's a level of challenge that's productive and there's a level of challenge that's counterproductive and realizing that sometimes you need to give yourself grace, listen to your body, be accepting of the fact that you're not always going to do the best. And sometimes that says something about how you can train better. Sometimes it just is what it is and you have to let it be just that. Um, and sometimes you grow the most from negative results because it teaches you how to be a better person, not for any other reason. Mm. Um, so 
I don't know, keeping perspective, I guess, in a nutshell is what I would say. I think that there's so much to love about the sport and we're all just really lucky to be in this community with each other. So there's that. <laughs> Man, what a good note to end on. Um, yeah, thanks for that. That was amazing. Melina, is there anything else that you wish that we'd talked about in this conversation? Anything else that you're burning to, to share or touch on before I let you go? Anything we missed? Uh, we really covered the whole gamut there, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know that I have anything to add. I'm, we really hit all our marks, I would say. Yeah. But yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I had a really, really fun time talking about all this with you. Good. Well, I'm glad. It was my pleasure. As always, I do this because it's so much fun to have conversations like this. And Melina Costanza, you're a badass. Thanks for being real. Thanks for being open and vulnerable and for having some laughs and having fun with me as well. And... Thanks for so much of your time today. Yeah, always. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you. All right. What's in store for the rest of the day? Uh, well, it's Valentine's Day, so Alex and I are gonna do gonna do some stuff. Really <laughs> nice. After yeah, <laughs> after I do a little bit of work. But nice. All yeah, right. Well, be a yeah, fun day. enjoy the day. And yeah, big big surprise there for people that didn't catch on. Alex Johnson. Thank you to Alex Johnson for submitting the fun facts. She was my very secret. Uh, anonymous source um so yeah thanks aj that was super fun but yeah that's awesome hope you guys enjoy your enjoy your time and uh thank you once again and for everybody listening i will link to all things melina costanza in the show notes at the nuggetclimbing.com you can check that out and thanks so much for listening we did it we're done Yay, that was so that was really that was really fun. Good, I'm glad, man. Thanks. I had so much fun too. Hey friends, before you go, quick shout out to all of our sponsors for this episode. As always, you can find links to all of our sponsors and you can see the coupon codes for their products in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com or just by scrolling down right there in your podcast app. I make it really easy for you guys to get great deals on some of my favorite products. So check them out. Scroll down right there in your podcast app or check out the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. And as always, I put tons of goodies in the show notes. So for this episode, you can find links to all the things, videos and books we talked about, related podcast episodes, my guests' links, etc. You can find all of that stuff conveniently linked for you at thenuggetclimbing.com. Just find this episode and all of the show notes will be there, including timestamps so you can scroll around and find some of the best nuggets from this interview if you want to listen to those sections again. And as always, thank you guys so much for listening. If you want even more great content, if you've been loving the show, I do have a Patreon. I have tons of bonus episodes over there, almost 50 bonus episodes. They're called follow-ups that I've published so far with past guests from the show. Those bonus episodes are some of my favorite interviews that I've done on the podcast. You can get access to all of those and ad-free episodes and more for $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash thenuggetclimbing to learn more. There's a link for Patreon right there in your podcast app as well. Thank you guys for listening. I appreciate all of the support. Happy climbing. I hope you have an amazing week and we will see you next time.